Hello and welcome to episode 28 of We Have Such Films to Show You, uh, the podcast where we record ourselves talking. I am your host to the left, Josh Millard. And I am your host to the other left, Yaakov. Nicely played. Uh, we're talking about uh, In the Mouth of Madness this episode. Uh, and I think we should we should acknowledge that uh, previous episode, uh, which is episode 28 in an alternate universe where we recorded it, was going to be about a medieval horror. And uh, we discovered as we were sitting down to record it a couple weeks ago that uh, I had not watched Amityville Horror. I had watched In the Mouth of Madness because I got my shit all screwed up. Uh, and then we just decided to say fuck it because you were not super excited about uh, Amityville when you actually sat down and did watch it ahead of time. Yeah, wasn't great. Wasn't great. Um, it was. It was basically. I mentioned this on the Facebook group, but it's basically just like one of those seventies movies about having adult anxieties, except also the house is an asshole, <laughs> and that that's really you know it's, it's just it's just one more thing on top of all the shit piled on them. The house is a piece of shit. It's, it's kind of like the money pit, but with yeah, I, 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 we should watch the money pit sometime and try and treat it as a straight faced horror film. I have never even heard of that. Oh, oh classic, uh, like classic eighties, uh, Tom Hanks and, uh, what's her face? Diane from cheers. Uh, Shelley long. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think it was Shelley long. Uh, they, they, they buy a house together and they're, you know, a happy married couple. And then the house is such a mess that it ends up destroying their marriage very nearly. I don't even remember how it ends. If it ends on an optimistic, well, we got out of that or, or not note, but, uh, it's a, it's a wacky comedy about the perils of home ownership. Uh, and yeah, yep. <laughs> strong start here, strong start. So, so in the mouth of madness, the the film we have actually both watched uh, for this episode. Yeah. Uh, Amityville, of course, was going to be sort of like a buffer between uh, the previous Prince of Carpenter Darkness film. and this one. Prince of Darkness and this one. Yeah, yeah. Have we ever actually explained the Apocalypse trilogy? Because I don't think we have. You, you've made glancing. Why don't you just why don't you just sum it up right now? Uh, so it's it's a a a loose trilogy of movies by John Carpenter, which are The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and this movie, uh, In the Mouth of Madness, and the, he calls them the Apocalypse Trilogy because they are about, in you know, certain ways, the end of the world, or apocalyptic themes. Um, and, you know, there's other threads linking them. Uh, there's, you know, in, in all of the movies, you sort of something you you hold as a as as a fact that you know we've never had contact with aliens um you know religion is either real or isn't real and um in this one that you know you are living in reality and not fiction and just things like that it's there's also that that threat of discovering something horrible um and it just completely changing your your world view and in fact in this movie they they explicitly sort of refer to that theme um i think styles uh, talks about in the car um, when when she mentions that you know uh, what was it I have it in, like in the middle of my notes somewhere it, it was something like that you know she she reads Sutter Kane's books uh, because it terrifies her to think of what it would happen if his point of view was real rather than hers and then that's what yeah. ends up happening yeah. and so on so I guess we could make the loose argument that we didn't necessarily see the titles of all his books. It's possible Sutter Kane also wrote books titled The Thing and Prince of Darkness, for all we know. 
That's uh, true. I mean, it doesn't totally fit with his his established pseudo Lovecraftian uh, uh, shtick, but you know, maybe he wrote them under pen names. Do you know uh, Sutter Kane is an anagram for utterances? I did not notice that. That's kind of great. One thing I did notice is Sutter Kane perfectly fits Stephen King's own sort of description of how he has like a perfect horror movie or, or, or a horror author name, which he espouses, I think, at one point in 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 character as one of his various author characters in a book. Uh, how you want you want the 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 medium length first name and then a nice big you know. Uh, shorter uh, last name so that you can have like Stephen King, Sutter Kane. You know, you've got that nice sort of like boom, boom, you know, heavy landing on Dean the one, Koontz. two. <laughs> I think that that's a sign. Dean Koontz obviously should not have ever gotten into the horror business because his name wasn't the right uh, proportions. Um, yeah, I thought that that was an interesting thing. I mean, not to not to jump randomly around because we never do that when discussing films. But uh, Sutter, yeah, we Kane, got an agenda here. Come on, <laughs> Sutter Kane as sort of like obviously. I mean, the the obvious contemporary riff is Stephen King, but the film goes yeah. out of its way to say it's not Stephen King by basically trying to like you know dismissively shit on Stephen King as not oh, yeah, even keeping Sutter up. Kane's been uh, Sutter Kane outsells Stephen King was, was yes. a long time. Yeah, uh, yeah, I wrote it down somewhere even I think maybe, but. Uh, you can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. So, like we, the film just likes like no, 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 no. It's not. It's not a King analog. It's a. It's a more than King, which is fair because the nature of the character is something more than just best-selling horror author, as the story turns out. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's an interesting, weird sort of like. There's that obvious tension there, especially. I mean, this was '94. Uh, yeah, that's uh, Stephen King was. I mean, he was more popular than he is now. I, I don't know if it was the height of his fame, but that was definitely a time when, you know, he was a, a household name in an active sense. Yeah. Because that was, um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I I wouldn't even be able to list all of, like, the mid-90s Stephen King movies alone. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, like, the books that they were based on. Um, yeah, so this is... Very uh, zeitgeisty in that way, yeah. I guess. And this was a few years before King got uh, hit by that van and almost killed. So, so maybe that uh, maybe that's Sutter Kane's fault too. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of weird what they did with like the Sutter Kane character in that you know this movie is really Lovecraftian. Like where the previous ones were just like yeah yeah all right, and this one you know there's there's things have names after things in Lovecraft. You know all of the names of Sutter Kane's books are just Lovecraft uh, stories, just with the names shifted around a bit. It's like you know really in your face, but with the Sutter Kane character, Sutter Kane character is absolutely not H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the general, like, you know, idea of H.P. Lovecraft, which is like the sort of gaunt, anemic, Rhode Island, uh, kind of, you know, New England, locked away, sort of, uh, reclusey guy. And then Sutter Kane is absolutely not that. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's technically reclusive in the core narrative of this film yeah. just because he's gone off the, the radar. But yeah, he doesn't present as that sort of weird, withdrawn occultist. He's He seems like this really charismatic guy who just happens mm-hmm. to be shepherding in the end of the world through the power of his writing. You know, what do you do? Uh, so yeah, it is... Uh, I, I kind of wish we'd seen more of him. 
Yeah, um, and this is this is. I want to say this is the third time I've seen this this movie, and I enjoyed it the previous time. I, I think it really sort of. I, I think I got like good and creeped out by it the first time I saw it, and then mm-hmm. when I eventually got around to watching it the second time, I was more like revisiting that, uh, and then you know saw more of the film as it is rather than just being taken along for a good uh, horror yarn. Um, and then watching it again now, it's it, it's interesting how much I didn't. Ref- retain even after the second viewing the overall shape of the arc because like we're really kind of done with Kane uh like 30 minutes before the end of the film uh whereas yeah, i yeah, sort of remembered just, that like, confrontation like, here you go. like yeah I, I sort of remembered that as like the confrontation confrontation between him and, and sam neill's character as like something that happened like six minutes before the end of the mil- film and then we had a quick epilogue but it's actually they drag it out a lot more than that i don't want to say drag it out it's just paced differently than that um, right, but part of it is I, I love Jurgen Prock now. I, I, I can <laughs> he's he's just fucking great. You know, I, I loved him as as Duke Leto. I loved him in Dust Boat. Uh, he's 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 I just he's got a great face and he's got a great acting feel and and and, and he's yes. got that name. Yeah, it's kind of like you know that name. that name. That's yeah, it's it's one of those names, Jurgen Prancha. Um. The hell were we talking? Oh, there was something um, you mentioned that. So yeah, this is the first time I've actually seen this movie. I'd never seen it before. Exciting. Uh, Yeah, and I watched it. You know, like at night with the lights off by myself. You know, in the apartment. And yeah, this was one of the. I think this is probably the scariest John Carpenter movie that I've seen. Like, like the most like legitimately like frightening. Yeah. Um, and probably one of the more like scary movies that we've done on this podcast. It was uh, there. There's definitely some pretty like fucking scary moments. Not just because something's popping out from behind somewhere. Yeah. Like, um, which is you know I I really like John Carpenter, but that's not like. That that like the the you know the sort of like you know edge of your seat like that kind of scary isn't the kind of scary I associate with Carpenter. Yeah, I expect, and it's like, really nice to see him like um, be good at it, basically, because he is in this movie. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's one of the things I wanted to talk about actually, since we're sort of discussing this as this trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really feels like Prince of Darkness was the big fat steaming load in the middle. As yeah. As like, I mean, there's, yeah. I didn't like, like, I, I think we, I, if I remember right, I feel like we sort of ended up spending the entire podcast just sort of shitting on it. And I really didn't hate the movie or anything. There were a lot of things I liked about it. And a lot of them were carpentry things. There was just a yeah, lot of things that, I also we, didn't like. Yeah. We kept trying to say good things and then just like another bad thing would come out. And then we'd, you know, stick to that for a while. So yeah, I just, I, I also think that we sounded like we, dislike that movie a lot more than we actually do yeah it's it's really I, I think it's i was having a hard time not thinking about it in terms of the thing and then uh on the other side you know, i can't help but think about some of the things that i felt like worked well in this film and then look back at prince of darkness and say well you know what the heck happened but i think part of what ha- happened is probably seven years went by and john carpenter you know uh grew a little bit in terms of his sensibility yeah. of how to make a horror movie work um, because there's 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 plenty of things there's little details about this movie that I think are 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 not exactly perfect too. Uh, oh, you mean anytime but, there's a woman on the screen? Well, <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 sexual politics of John Carpenter's films have not improved a ton in those intervening years. It appears, but uh, 
but still, it, it feels so much more. It feels a lot more cohesive. It feels more thought through, at least as a story. And it's it seems clearer what the various characters are supposed to be doing. It at versus Prince of Darkness, where it felt like there were a lot of people on screen to to push around wheelbarrows full of dialogue uh, that someone had brought to the set. Um, not that this movie is lacking in in, in scenes like that. But, no, 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 no. But no. yeah, it's it's definitely. And you know what? You know, Prince of Darkness and the Thing. They were both really like. I mean, the thing was straight up just claustrophobic. Like you're you're stuck in you're either stuck in the base or or you're stuck like in the outer base in the Antarctic, which is like the most remote area. There was yeah. just like a really sense of everything closing in. And and Prince of Darkness, um, you know, it didn't feel exactly like that. You know, the 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 actual cathedral and some of the sets were pretty tight in, but mostly it just felt like it was very confined to just, you know, these two locations. There was the university yeah. and then there was the uh, the cathedral and that's it. You're you're there. And, you know, both movies had, like, a very uh, small cast. And, you know, it, it not because of any reason, but because that's the way they were written. You know, there's no there was no reason to have just, like, more extras, you know, hanging yeah. around uh, in those well, two. And, and I feel like the thing, it was really well justified in working right. on the story. I feel like with, with Prince of Darkness, it just sort of happened. Like, right. that's the sets we're yeah. using. We're keeping and, them here. Yeah, and, and this movie, you know, there's lots of extras, lots of scene changes, you know, they go all over the country, and it's just, it's, it's a lot more wide open, I think. Um, and I forgot where I was going with that. But that's what I think. Yeah, it, it definitely, it, it is a difference, and it's interesting that that is one of the things that is different about this film versus the, the other two. Yeah. Um, when I feel like, yeah, I don't know, it, it's... I'll have to organize my thinking on it because I feel like there's something to say there, but I can't uh, put it together uh, yet. Uh, but yeah, it, it definitely is an interesting thing. And I think maybe that is one of the things that helps it work is maybe the fact that, you know, Carpenter was willing to sort of move things around from location to location, helped develop the story a little bit uh, a, a little bit more effectively, gave it an actual sense of, you know, space, as it were. Uh, I want to also say, talking about trios of films loosely organized into trilogies uh sam neill sam neill is our star in this and sam neill i think of uh, sam neill's done a bunch of work like you know obviously he's 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 had uh lots of Dress lots Park. of work over the years but the three films that i think of because they just happen to be the three films that i think of as sam neill films and that i've seen a few times are you know event horizon uh, in the Mouth of Madness and Jurassic Park. And they're sort of like a, one of these things is not like the other there for sure. Uh, <laughs> but it's kind of funny. I feel like like, like, like Sam Neill was, was good in Jurassic Park. Like he, mm. he did just fine as a scientist experiencing a combination of, you know, wonder and fear and, and sort of making his way through that. But I, I feel like it is sort of conspicuous to me that Jurassic Park is the one of the three films where something didn't fundamentally corrupt and destroy him as a person. Right. When I feel like he actually does that pretty well. I mean, say what you will about Event Horizon, uh, <laughs> and obviously we said plenty of things about it when we, we watched that one, but, you know, he is not really a fault in there. Him sort of yeah. losing his shit and becoming corrupted, I felt like that worked pretty well. He worked that character well, and he does a good job yeah. of being a crazy, manic, insane person 
uh, in this one as well. So it's kind of yeah. a shame, basically. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, first of all, he's really, you know, when you get to like the exclamation point acting with the mustache twirling and, and then so on, <laughs> he's good at that. But also on the other end, he's able to just be really subtle and subdued and, you know, kind of plain. So when he, when that difference happens, you know, that's why it's so great to see um, just him as an actor do that. Just yeah. like take it from one end to the other when he's, you know, when he's, you know, perfectly calm competent at you know the one the, the the subtle end and he's particularly good at the you know like flipping his shit end yeah that uh yeah he really Did you notice he, his, he really brings his, those eyebrows into play you know yeah. it's like you, you can sense they come to life like some sort of possessed caterpillars or something yeah he's very um <laughs> you know like that you know <laughs> possessed caterpillars of course um yeah so there was um did, did you notice that, like, the crazier he got in this movie, the more his British accent started coming out? <laughs> I, I noticed it was a little bit uneven. I didn't, I didn't uh, make the correlation, but I, I find that totally yeah, I plausible. Mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming that's what that was, and this isn't like, you know, what is it, uh, Miller's Crossing, where, uh, the hell's the name of the guy in Miller's Crossing? I haven't um, seen it in a while. Gabriel Byrne? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, where Gabriel Byrne just keeps going in and out of his accent as he pleases. <laughs> So I would prefer to think that this one's on purpose. Yeah, I, 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 I like Gabriel Byrne, but yeah, that's something I've noticed too. He he never really quite stops being uh, Irish, I guess. Um, but yeah, so Sam Neill, I, 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 I like watching him in this, and, and uh, I feel like I was going to go somewhere else with that specifically. But Well, okay, so here's one of the things about this film, and this is, I think, the big open question about the film stylistically, and this is maybe me going a little bit... Uh, reach exceeding grasp as far as trying whoa, to... Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I know. I'm whoa, me reaching. But okay, basically, I feel like I may be about to make a stronger defense of some of John Carpenter's weaker points as a director than, than is really totally justified. But, but one of the central character premises of this film is that Sam Neill's character literally is a creation of Sutter Kane who basically didn't exist before we see him on screen at the start of the film. Uh, right? So, like, he is, he is literally a character in a schlocky yet compelling horror novel paperback. Uh, and there are things about the dialogue in this film at times that strike me as sort of typically carpenterianly car- car- carpentresquely uh, sort of hammy and, and schlocky that, that I think were the sort of things we were actively criticizing in Prince of Darkness in particular. Um, that you could make the argument that they're sort of hammy and schlocky because John Carpenter develops hammy, schlocky dialogue, although I don't know if he wrote this one, so it could be someone else's fault. Or there's the idea that hammy, schlocky dialogue is exactly what you would expect from a character in a you know middling paperback horror yarn, and so everything he does that's a little bit meh is totally justified by the fact that he was just written by Sutter Kane and Sutter Kane's strong point is more summoning the forces of evil rather than writing really, you know, realistic humanistic dialogue. So that's, that's my big sort of what if about some of the stylistic choices throughout the film that I want to just put out there up front here. Yeah. I mean, I, I was considering that and, and I don't know where I fall because on the one hand, yeah, you know, that could vary. They, they do, the, the movie makes a really plausible case for that, especially considering how uh, 
that, that Sutter Kane is never actually mentioned as a good writer, as in nobody ever talks about his writing being good. Like Sam Neill's character thinks his writing is bad, and the rest of the characters just who are fond of him just think that it that it brings out something, you know, from like you know it, that it, that it scares them. But nobody ever says that his writing is good. Um, just like in, in as in good writing. So I. The movie does make a case, but on the other hand, it's sort of like the, you know, it was all a dream explanation where it's like, all right, if it was all a dream, you know, that still doesn't really get you out of having to explain certain things that you did that don't make sense. Yeah. So, and then, you know, in that case, like, you know, the, the sort of like some of the shittier parts of this movie, um, you know, it. It could equally be that they, that was just very built up as a very good excuse to get out of it, rather than like <laughs> the 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 that's actually part of the narrative. Yeah, I, yeah. I feel like you could really sort of like take however however uh, generous you're feeling and and calibrate how much you 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 lay that onto the whole thing accordingly. But uh, yeah, and I mean, I sort of went like you know. It, basically scene by scene in this movie where, you know, if it was a good scene, I was willing to give it more of the benefit of the doubt than if it was, like, the conversation between Sutter Kane and Styles, which was just, why? <laughs> wow. It's just seriously, like, wow. Um, well, I want to say we'll I was, get into that shortly. <laughs> I was speculating about whether Carpenter wrote this one. It looks like this was actually written by a guy named Michael DeLuca, um, who has written a few other things and produced a ton of stuff. So um, it's not just another name for Carpenter. Like right. With, um, it does not seem to be, unless this yeah. is a much more elaborate one, but this seems to be an actual human who exists yeah. uh, outside of, of Carpenter. Uh, and his other writing credits include an episode of Star Trek Voyager, <laughs> uh, the 1995 version of Judge Dredd, uh, a couple episodes of a TV series called Dark Justice. Are these uh, his credits as writer or as producer? Yeah, as writer. As writer, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Uh, several episodes of Freddy's Nightmares and uh, the Lawnmower Man (parentheses short). Uh, yeah, I've heard of that. Um, it, it's based on that. It's it's actually based on the Stephen King story rather than the movie, which is a total departure from the Stephen King story. Yeah. Anyway, so yes, his production credits are are much much more impressive than his writing credits, basically. He was a producer on, uh, oh, Captain Phillips, Fright Night, Social Network. Uh, so he's, he's a few. Okay, so he's, which I did not know Blade 2 was Guillermo del Toro. Have we talked about this? Previously? Really? I had no yeah. idea. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it suggested as a thing to see, and it's been on my list for a while. Uh, but And everybody was always like, oh, yeah, Blade 2. And it's like, oh, should I see Blade? Nah, just, just see Blade 2. And it turns out Blade 2 was specifically del Toro, <laughs> and I had no idea. So now it's that's jumped high up on my list. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of a horror movie, right? You should watch that for yeah, the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you mentioned that show, <laughs> Vampires. Uh, it makes yeah. it a horror movie. He he wrote we'll for a show called Twilight. Dark Justice. Yeah. Here's the here's the plot summary of Dark Justice. After his wife and daughter are murdered, Judge Nicholas Marshall loses faith in the judicial system. Selecting defendants from the cases appearing in his court, he presses them into a different kind of community service as members of a vigilante group nicknamed the Night Watchmen. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, that, 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 could, be, that could be amazing and it's probably not very good at all. Uh, maybe we should look that up sometime. I recently watched a couple of episodes of um, Highlander, the 
series. Um, I forget what it's called. Uh, and it's, wow, it's, it's, I'm, I'm surprised how much television has improved in the intervening years. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird series. I actually, I, I watched, highlight, <laughs> at some point we'll talk about it in the mouth of Mathis, uh, I promise, listeners. But, uh, <laughs> the Highlander, I, 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 I saw Highlander, uh, the original, uh, film, uh, when I was fairly young and, and, and really liked it and uh, Christopher Lambert's got the weirdest fucking accent it's, it's fantastic <laughs> uh, and so I really liked the Highlander film and then there was also the TV series on and I you know it wasn't until it was a little bit older and started to understand how shit like this happened that I like found out the history of like the two and, and the vague interconnectedness and whatnot because I never understood why you know the guy in the show was totally totally not Connor McLeod and like I didn't like Duncan McLeod at all, like I, I wanted more Connor McLeod being weird and stilted, and you know, <laughs> instead it was like uh, Duncan and, and and Richie, Richie, right? Is the name of the kid with a motorcycle? Yeah, yeah, who I, the- I'm gonna. If you've never watched the Highlander TV show and are planning to start from the beginning and don't want spoilers, just cover your ears for 15 <laughs> seconds because I'm not going to try any harder to protect you. But I did not know that Richie didn't start out as an immortal, and I spoiled my little brother. Like when he was starting from scratch, because like, oh yeah, it was, and I was just remembering the show. I was like, oh yeah, and, and Connor and Richie and Richie was, and he was like, what do you mean, Richie? And I was like, oh, did that not start that way? And he was like, uh, no, it didn't. I was like, oh well, that happens eventually. Um, I guess, I guess originally Richie's just like this fucking kid on a motorcycle, and I must yeah, have yeah. started seeing reruns around five seasons in or something, or maybe yeah, I just didn't realize he I- wasn't for some of those episodes and he just didn't get his head cut off or anything. And so I didn't notice. Um, yeah, no, the, the episode that I watched, he was, he was human. And then I was just like, so what's up with this schmuck? And my wife's just like, you I'm going to spoil it for you. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah like, he it. turns out to be an immortal. I'm like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't particularly improve his character that I recall, but, but the, 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 the show was always so kind of, it just felt like they did not have, uh, enough budget to be the show they wanted to be uh, in terms of effects or actors or writing, but they just sort of, you know, ran with it anyway. And I know some people who fucking love it. Like that was their show. Like, I think if you just, if you hit it at the right time and the right place, that could have been like, that show could have been your life. And the movies were these weird things with this, you know, freakazoid dude who couldn't talk right. Uh, In high school, I went over my friend's house and we watched the blooper reel from that series, which he had on VHS for some reason. How was that? Um, it was pretty funny. The okay. bloopers were pretty funny. Uh, let's see. Should we talk about this movie? Maybe we should talk about this movie. Uh, what, Highlander? I, yeah, I yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a horror movie, right? In the mouth of madness. <laughs> Highlander 2 is horrible in a lot of ways, so that, that could count. Um, I, well, okay, let, 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 just really briefly, a couple more cast notes, because this, this film has a bunch of great that guy sort of characters. I mean, we, we, we talked about Sam Neill. We've talked about Jurgen. Uh, David Warner is in this uh, a little bit. And what else he's great. Uh, I believe he is AKA the master control uh, unit from Tron oh, okay. uh, and a bunch of other stuff. I mean, he's been in all kinds of shit. He was the evil wizard dude in time bandits. Um, he's been, you know, a scientist fellow probably in a million things. 
Um, but yeah, the, the MCP in Tron particularly, I think is where most people our age probably were first exposed to him as a face. Well, and he was also the evil, you know, CEO, you know, since everybody in that film was two people. Um, oh, and, uh, he was in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. Oh, sweet. I don't even remember where he was in that. He played a scientist. Oh, well, see, there you go. He, he, he does, he gives good scientists, you know. Yeah. Uh, John Glover is in this, who is one of those that guy guys who I've seen him in a bunch of things and I can never remember what the other things are when I see him, but he was the, the, the tall, skinny, twerpy asylum dude. Um, yeah, that guy was, all, that was, that, his entire role in this, it just bordered on camp and just did not step over that line. Yeah, it's like, it's like he, he wandered off the set of, uh, the reanimator. Yeah, and ended up yeah. here somehow, and just ran with it. Like, oh, is this the wrong? Uh, is this the wrong set? Well, I've got a coat. <laughs> Let's just just give me some lines. I'll run with it. Uh, and and he's he's got the same weird feel. He was in uh, Gremlins too. He was like the CEO in that. Uh, he was in uh, I think he was in RoboCop or I'll just look at his bit. RoboCop two. Um, he was in Batman and Robin as I don't even remember who. Dr. I, Jason Woodrue. You know, I never saw Batman and Robin. That's why I can't remember who. Oh, he voiced the Riddler on the Bat- uh, Batman the Animated Series. Ah, okay. That's because he sounded really, really familiar. Yeah, and I guess he was on Smallville. Yeah. I haven't seen a lot of stuff he was actually in, apparently. But uh, anyway, he's, so he's kind of great. Uh, Charlton Heston. Was in this, you know, in the framing device at the front and the end? Underused, I think. I, I, th- I think there was, you know, I mean, he was probably just incredibly expensive. So, yeah. um, you know, but yeah, they, they could have gotten so much more out of Charlton Heston, I think. His, he was, yeah, he it, was it, too, too subtle in this yeah, one. Yeah, a movie that just, like, excelled at getting away with scenery chewing at key bits that has Charlton Heston as the, you know, sort of, incredulous, well-mannered, you know, publishing executive. It seems, yeah, like a little bit of a waste. Uh, Frances Bay as the little old lady. And yeah, she everybody was, the, uh, she was on Seinfeld, as, right? Yeah, uh, I, yeah, and she was uh, in probably, oh, at least one of the Adam Sandler movies. I think the, the golfing one. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, Happy Gilmore. She was in Blue Velvet? I missed that. And Edmund, I missed that. I've seen both those movies. I've only seen Edmund once. Don't see Edmund. <laughs> Um, I thought it was a I thought it was a David Mamet movie, and it turned out to have been based on a David Mamet script. And uh, yeah, it was not not great. Even though William H Macy was in it, and I generally like him a lot. Um, oh yes, Francis Francis Bay's character is named uh, Mrs Pickman, and it's the Pickman Hotel or the Pickman Bed and Breakfast or whatever that she runs. Right, right. And that's uh, taken from a Lovecraft story. The name, I mean, there's a Lovecraft story called Pickman's Bottle. Ah, um, so that's that's a, one of the numerous like direct references to Lovecraft. The other one that I another one that I spotted was um, when uh, Trent was in. Uh, Let's just call him Sam Neill. When Sam Neill was in Charlton Heston's office, um, and they had that like little stand-up of the uh, Sutter Kane novels, there was like on top of it was just Cthulhu, just like straight up, it was Cthulhu. <laughs> Didn't even notice. You're a Cthulhu. I'm a Cthulhu guy myself. Uh, I hear the word pronounced aloud so unoften that. Well, yeah, and there it's intentionally weird, phonetically implausible stuff. I, I think this is one of the things where I would love to see like a a, a sort of phonetic survey of fans. Uh, so in the middle of the country, they call him Cthulhu. In the West Coast, they call him Cthulhu. And in near Canada, it's called Pop. 
Yes, yes, right. And in Georgia, it's just a Coke. It's just a Coke, and you're like, oh, but what sort of Coke? Oh, a, a Cthulhu Coke. Um, yep. Oh, and Frances Bay, this is the other thing. Frances Bay, like, started acting, like, like she she's one of those people where she actually did, like, was born old, as far as actors go. Like, her first gig, she was, like, 58, I think. Uh, oh, like yeah, that. 1977, yeah. she played a maid on the Mary Tyler Moore show, and she was born in 1919. Yeah, so, Frances Bay. Is she still alive? I closed the tab. No, she like, died oh, okay. uh, about... Uh, let's see, about three years ago at age 92. All right. Good run, she, Yeah, yeah. Her, her like, long-spanning acting career was her second career, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, In the mouth of math. <laughs> I'll stop, I'll stop uh, getting distracted by cast stuff now. Um, although I, oh shit, I do have one more. <laughs> Vil, Wilhelm von Homburg is the thick-accented uh, dude in town who has a couple of uh, conversations with Sam Neill uh, before and after things really go properly to shit. He's the leader of the people who storm the church before being run off by uh, Sutter Kane. Mm-hmm. And then later he's in the bar, I think, in the process essentially of dying. Um, uh, so his actual name is Norbert Garupa. But he, his acting name is Wilhelm von Homburg, and you will remember him probably most specifically for being uh, Vigo the Conqueror in Ghostbusters 2. Wait, that was he's, him? He's the fucking painting. The voice was Max von Sydow. Uh, okay, but yeah. But the face was uh, Wilhelm, so, okay. who apparently is yeah. also dead and was not nearly as old as Francis. So, oh my God, this film is killing us all coming true. And he was in Die Hard. Was he? Yeah, oh, I okay. guess he was one of the goons. Oh, there you go. The goon named James. Yep. Um, yeah. So those are the people who are in the movie. Now now we can discuss the content of it, I guess. Uh, the, uh, the, the opening of this film, uh, I, I'm going to assume once again that John Carpenter was directly responsible for... Uh, the move, the, the the music that it opens. Yeah, up. as far as I can tell, he was playing that metal. Yeah, so it's, it, with this whole rock guitar metal thing over printing prices. It's like it's like yeah. if Mister Rogers went metal because we get to watch this sort of montage, you know, process of the printing of a paperback book. But that's like, and it's not yeah, really and like the heaviest metal either. You know, it's no, like, it's not. It's not like you know. It's 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 definitely like just the. If you were like browsing in the archives for you know music to use for your movie, and you just found a CD just labeled heavy metal, that's what would have been on it. And it's like, I feel like if you're going to go that hard with a juxtaposition, you really should go harder. Like if you want to go metal, because I feel like I feel like this should have been the music over uh, uh, like Act Three montage of the successful printing of the upstart underdog novel that wasn't going to make it. You know, like, like, like if, if it turns out that you won't believe it, you get a phone call at the darkest moments, like it's the publisher, man, they're printing it, they're printing a million of them. And then that music would start and we'd have like a party scene or something. But instead that's, that's how we open this horror movie. Uh, I would say it felt like a very John Carpenter moment, which is not necessarily praise per se, but it's, it's definitely sort of part of his character as a, as a director that I can kind of get behind just out of fondness. 
Yeah, they were very like creditsy credits, and I have no other way of phrasing that. In that you're watching something active that has no bearing on anything, so you could actually read the names of the people. Yeah, you're sort of waiting for the movie to actually start at that point, rather than getting sucked in. But hey, that's whatever. That's that's uh, that's how we open, uh, and then it's straight to the asylum. Which nice fisheye shot of the asylum. Yeah, I, I like that shot. And then the, uh, when the, when they get on the inside, you know, there's that giant column thing, and that sort of structure is mirrored in the movie a lot. You see it over and over again, like with the church, with um, some other building that I that I don't recall at the moment. Um, but yeah, that sort of just you know like curved fisheye shot of something towering over the screen. Uh, that that it, it starts with like right right then and there. Yeah, there's there, there, there's a few sort of those architectural sort of like. Uh, impact shots. Uh, later, we get the church from the exterior, and then the church interior. Oh, and that kind of reminds me of Prince of Darkness, where that was one of the things I think we did like is there was mm-hmm. a couple of good uses of sort of like uh, cathedral verticality to to lend a sense of sort of space to some of yeah. the set stuff. Um, and it's like I feel like it's almost like I, I don't have that much to say about the asylum stuff because it's just very asylumy. Um, you know, in a sense, that works well because they're trying to create this sort of weird, unsettling thing where it's almost like the asylum is a safe space, even though it turns out the world is actually really going to shit outside. Right. We don't know that right at the beginning, of course. So instead, we've got like, oh, a quirky dude in charge of asylum admissions and uh, and then Sam Neill's drawing. Yeah, the th- black there's a guy everywhere. gets kicked in the nuts like thread that goes through like at least 15 minutes of the first <laughs> act where they're just constantly mentioning the fact that Sam Neill kicked the guard in the balls. Yep. And it starts with him screaming, sorry about your balls. <laughs> also, he shouts, I'm not insane. And then, you yep. know, Everybody goes all Spartacus, like, I'm not if he's not, which I thought was a, a cute, funny little touch. I just watched an episode of News Radio where uh, Phil Hartman's character um, gets committed to an asylum, and that exact same thing happens in it. <laughs> I, I, I do want to say if you're going to do as much drawing on your padded cell and on yourself as Sam Neill's character did mm. uh, in this film, you're going to need more than one black crayon. They make a point of saying he just asked for one black one crayon. Black that, crayon. Was, that he managed that was to draw box. on himself with somehow. Yeah. Like, it's not a, it's not a grease crayon. Maybe it was one of those, like, novelty oversized crayons. Oh, yeah. See, all they had is just a giant set. And so what we see him working with at the end is, you know, the, the what tiny they confiscated rubbing. from the clown in one of the cells. Oversized novelty crayon in black. But so, yeah, the framing device, he, uh, we, we see him here and he basically, you know, uh, tells his story to uh, the master control process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then we get a flashback to, to opening up uh, where he came from. And this, that, that I feel like ties in well because, like, the structure of the film. And the film plays with this very explicitly right at the end of the film. The structure of the film works just fine as the structure of a horror movie that opens with uh, this character. You know, the idea that the, the the story in the book would start with this, you know, admission into an asylum and all this, like, little bit of action with the ball kicking and whatnot. And then it goes into the flashback. And that would work perfectly well in a novel. And so it sort of makes sense that it, it happens in the film if the film is, in theory, the adaptation of the novel that itself is the story of the undoing of the world that Sam Neill's character's managing to be at the center of. So if he was, in fact, invented by Sutter Kane and didn't exist before 
the Sutter Kane book did, then he didn't exist before the moment he is brought into the asylum doors. Uh, yep. And in a sense, his story doesn't exist until he's telling it to David Warner's uh, psychiatrist or whatever character. Mm-hmm. Um, so by starting from the beginning, he's literally starting at the beginning and then starting from the beginning. I, I, I feel well, like I'm like more excited about this idea yeah. than I'm actually conveying. There, I, I think there, you know, that there's there's a small hint that he might have like Kaiser Soze that's whole story. Yeah. Um, boy, I hope everybody listening has seen that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you're confused, Kaiser Soze was a sled, a sled. Um, yeah. So, because, you know, if you take out the framing device, the only thing you have is the story that he tells and the fact that, um, what's his name? The guy that interviews him has information that we're not privy to. Because he says, you know, he thinks it's... Isn't it like his last time, like, he thinks that Sutter Kane is responsible for all of this? Or something like he thinks, the whole thing's, uh, he thinks the whole thing's fiction. Yeah. Which seems yeah, like a poor read on what he said, because it feels like what, what Sam Neill's character was saying was, you know, that it was real and it started as fiction, whereas... Yeah, so we don't know what David Warner's character. I, I thought I thought David Warner's character was implying that you know whatever like whatever's happening is happening, but that Sam Neill's character just doesn't understand the cause of it and thinks it's because of you know that author guy. Yeah. So so that I mean, and that's all we have. And then he and then just like that very last scene, which is so like expressionist, it might as well just not have even happened. Which is this is an issue I have with the movie that. You know the the ending to this movie is just him showing up to a movie theater where they're playing in the mouth of madness and watching the movie that we just watched with like slightly more film grain, <laughs> um, and like with some worse editing. Not well, that the I, I, think bad, it, the, I think it was intended it was to be like, a montage. Like we're yeah. supposed to be watching sections of him watching but, but the movie. There's a scene where he just like repeats the same thing, like like it skips like a record, which is you know something we're used to now. But you know back then it was just it would have been weird that if that's exactly what he was seeing on the screen because then yeah. it wouldn't be the exact same movie. Well, and I agree with you. I think it was, I think it was intended to be sort of more yeah like like uh, sort of an expressionistic take yeah. on his experience of you know finally yeah. losing the last little bit of his mind as he watched right. this impossible thing. And, yeah, I just, I did not like that ending just because, you know, like, it's, you know, first of all, like, it's almost exactly the same ending as Blazing Saddles. Like, just, just from the, from the way that it's framed, from the way that he finds the movie theater, it's just so similar. But, first of all, you know, yeah, but, you know, like, Blazing Saddles was a comedy, and in Blazing Saddles, they didn't use that as the ending. They used that as the device to frame the ending, and in this movie, it's just the ending, so you get you, you get nothing like the just i i knew that they weren't going to close most of the threads that they opened in this movie but to have closed so little with that ending is something i really disliked about it see i did not have such a uh, a negative feeling about it like I, I i feel like it's i feel like it's kind of a cute way to end the movie and there's the argument uh certainly i can i can sympathize with wanting uh, mm-hmm. More stuff answered and 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 uh, more concrete explanation of sort of the state of things in the world, uh, but I wasn't really expecting one with the movie, and I feel like it's it's consistent with sort of uh, the weird, sketchy nature of the narrative. It's consistent with the Lovecraftian inspiration, where when he was at his best, Lovecraft didn't really paint a clear picture of stuff; he just went mm-hmm. for the creeping horror. 
and, and significantly, I'll say I feel like it's consistent with the other two Apocalypse trilogy films uh, because we don't really get a satisfying explanation of the state of things uh, in The Thing or in Prince of Darkness either. You know, If anything, Prince right. of Darkness uh, ends most neatly with the clear implication that the threat is contained for now. Um, but even then, it's it's still sort of left hanging as like, well, for the time being, the world won't be destroyed by Satan retrieving his father from the hell dimension. But you know, there's there's no real sense of total victory, even though it comes off a little bit more cheerily optimistic in some ways. Um, but then the thing, very much, I mean, we're left right there. We don't know which or whether either of these two characters we like is a horrible alien creature. We don't know what's going to happen when the credits end. We don't know if the world's going to be destroyed. So there's that looming sense of doom that's not cleaned up nicely in, in both cases there. And I feel like this film sort of recapitulated that in what I thought was a fairly reasonable way by, by dropping us in this ending where our central character who we have doubts about the you know meaningful existence of at, at all sits there and basically loses the last little bit of his mind, you know, laughing hysterically, watching something that would be impossible to even see, uh, sort of underscoring how impossible everything that's come before that was. And so I don't know. I guess I, I was on board with it because of that. I, whether or not it's sort of a silly thing to do, I, I felt like it worked well enough for this particular story. Right. Um, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I, th- I think just because this movie was so much bigger scale than the other two, I might have expected more out of the ending. Um, just because it was, it was like out of the three, it's the most like Hollywoody movie, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, like I was expecting less subversion, maybe. Yeah. Just because it was so you know Hollywoody and then big budget. Yeah, so I can see that. So I was wondering what. Um, yeah, the uh, you know the, what what was with the bike goblin? I don't know. I don't know what was with that. It's cause so we, so we see this bike that's originally uh, a kid. I want to say like I don't know, maybe fifteen ish, give or take. Yeah, we didn't really get a good a shot of him. He's a teen. Yeah, uh, we see him riding along, and then we see him riding along again. Except for then, he's like you know a ninety year old man with unkempt, flowing white hair. Uh, Maybe like sort of John Carpenter, you know, in another twenty years, going for a bike ride, um, and yeah, that's a recurring thing. But I don't feel like we ever got anything from it. Like I felt like he existed mostly to establish the weirdness of the boundary of Hobbes and and the the transition into the space of Sutter Kane's weird little bubble of a terror terrifying you know world being written into place. Uh, but I never got a better sense of it. it was just, he was he just felt like he was there to be sort of symbolic of that. Um, yeah, that's, he, it, it was almost like a Lynchian character, except, you know, even less was done with it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's a good way of putting it. It, it feels like it could almost be like a weird, uh, off-brand adaptation of something from Lost Highway, that whole, uh, deal with the, 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 the kid thing Can't, on the bike. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um. And the characters kind of resemble Which they're kind of on a lost highway. So, well, it's really... Yeah, yeah. It's not the, really a highway, uh, I guess. It's just a two-lane road, but... Yeah, but it's got, like, that exact... Well, it's got, like, half of the imagery from Lost Highway of, like, the yellow tracks and the black road. Yeah. Because um, it, it's it's from, I guess, the driver's seat and not somebody driving down the exact middle of the road. Um, 
but yeah, that that was that was sort of weird. And the painting too. In the painting where, you know, like they had like the, 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 the couple kept moving and changing places and turning into different things. And at the end, like one of them had like a hideously deformed eye. And then that yeah. happens to, um, styles and like a really quick, uh, yeah, yeah. In a really quick flash, which is also just something I'm just wondering about. Um, that they, they never did anything with that. I'm wondering if there's like maybe a cut scene. It or does feel if, like there could have been like another two yeah. minutes of styles related stuff, uh, in yeah. the end there that there wasn't yeah but i mean she she went out well like the uh the the, the scene with her like doing the spider walk yeah i that was that was really like carpentry when like you hear something disgusting but you don't see it and then her head just peeks out from like next to the car door at a level that it shouldn't be at and then like the rest of it stepped out that was all yep. like that is that is john carpenter at his like you know, at at, at, the, at the highest of his powers to like freak people out. Yeah, that was that was, that was um, a great little scene. You know, there was there was originally in Exorcist, and they may have restored this subsequently. They did the, uh, uh, the yeah, spider walk. Yeah, I remember the spider walk was not there mm-hmm. for uh, the release. I was able to get on yeah, VHS or yeah, DVD as a kid. When they re they re released it into theaters when I was in. Let's see, either ninth or tenth grade. Oh, right, right, right. I remember that. And yeah. it was in that because I went to go see that in the theater because there was used to be a theater around where I live now, actually, um, that really did not care how old you were. <laughs> like, yeah, I would. I have. I had seen so many rated R movies there at like between the ages of twelve and however the hell old it is that you can go see a rated R movie anywhere. Seventeen. 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 I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I just saw those all at home. My dad is enough of a cinephile that he was like, okay, well, you're reading Stephen King anyway. Let's watch The Exorcist and talk about, uh, you know, the, the themes of, 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 you know, possession and purification and, and Catholic guilt and whatnot. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. So the spider thing was with, with, with Styles was great. Um, and it just made me think immediately of that because I like that's sort of like my reference point is that, that bit from from exorcist and every time someone does a spider thing you have to think okay but let's think about the exorcist how do you think they did it fake head uh no i think she's just really flexible i think uh she's uh, part owl yes uh okay so so i i I touched on this but but since we're sort of getting into the movie uh we talked about the framing device and we go to flashback and what we flash back to immediately is sam neill uh we sort of get presented with his keen investigative eye as an insurance investigator. Yeah, yeah, that's the the like the parts of that, like from that point until the attack in the uh, the attack in the diner. This movie is like a fifties noir shot from weird angles. Yes, and like badly the dialogue. Written. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was it was like you know like weirdly stilted, gotcha dialogue in behalf of the detective. Um, you know, like very little, very little action. Like I was just wondering, it's like, there's something really familiar about this, but odd. And it's just like, if this was shot like dead on, um, you know, like, like a, like a, what do you call it? A a medium shot instead of like a canted shot, like from like the bottom going up. Um, this would have just been, you know, another noir movie. Yeah. Throw it, throw it into a, you know, high contrast, black and white and, And then it would just been some bad pulp. And well, and so the, so this is the thing. So we, we get into this, we get this sort of uh, exactly that sort of pattery noirish uh, thing going on. But the pattern's not very good. And we're 
I, I feel like we're supposed to be buying into Sam Neill's like investigative eye and and you know just how fucking on it he is. But his presentation is really kind of eh. You know, he yeah, catches this dude out for scamming, but like in the like lowest like like, like some very tepid uh, catching out, and then we get uh, Robbie telling him how incredible it is to watch him work. And it's like, that was not incredible. That was, yeah. that was okay. You know, you caught a guy who's super fucking dumb. Good job. You know, it's, it's really hard to like get super, you know, this is not Sherlock Holmes shit here. Yeah. That, that's one of the scenes that, that in which I did not, I couldn't give it the benefit of the doubt as far as, um, as far as it just being the, the, the product of a, you know, not good writer within the film universe yeah. rather than not good writer in our universe who wrote that scene. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I feel like, I feel like it could have been more conspicuously bad if it was supposed to be conspicuously bad, but at the same time, it's, it, it's hard to guess exactly what the intention was there. Uh, but yeah, it was this, that sort of set the film off for a whole weird starting point. Like it, it gets better when Sam Neill starts to lose it a little bit because at that point yeah. it tends to be a little bit more him acting in a fun way rather than delivering, uh, incredulous lines which he does for a lot of the film and he really goes pretty far into not saying okay something's deeply fucked up you know until it's way too late uh whereas linda linda styles manages to not say a really creepy fucked up thing just happened a bunch of times and sometimes it's implied that it happened off camera and they're talking about it afterwards <laughs> but like seriously there's like five or six points in this film and i know this is sort of a classic horror movie complaint but like I'm looking at the screen and just be like, why aren't you immediately grabbing him and saying, hey, look at this fucked up thing? You know, it's like if... And and you know what? Like the, the few times she does that, he just responds to it. Like uh, we're talking about like Sam Neill, like responds to it in the least curious way possible. It's like, hey, do you see those kids over there? Nope. All right, let's go over there now. <laughs> it's like, are you not the least bit concerned like, about what just happened there? Yeah, like, like they're, they're really not collaborating to uh, keep their shit together even before there's the implication that they've been compromised. And, yeah. and again, you know, it, it's, I wish it was more satisfying to come back to the, well, that's because Sutter Kane wrote it that way thing. Because mm-hmm. I feel like the film could have done some really interesting things with that, whereas it's merely, you know, interesting and I liked it, but uh, didn't... Uh, didn't really nail that stuff down. And I, I think maybe that's part of why, while I like the ending with the movie theater thing, I can also hear where you're coming from with it not being super satisfying. Because it's, like, it's not like that final movie theater scene is the capstone of like a really brilliant structural setup. It's more just like, oh, okay, it sort of works with the themes of the films and I liked it well enough. Whereas I could see there being a movie that, where that would just be amazing. You know, something, something like a, a Kaufman-esque sort of thing, you know, like Schenectady or, uh, or, or Cynic, Synecdoche, I should say, or, uh, or uh, everything else that he's ever written, really, basically. <laughs> um, adaptation, in particular, I was thinking of the way the, the film really bends in on itself in the third act um, and becomes the film that the idiot mainstream brother would have preferred to have written. Did we talk about that at all? It's not a horror movie at all. Uh, Synecdoche, New York? Uh, I was, I was thinking adaptation specifically. Oh, adaptation? I, you know, I avoid Charlie Kaufman movies, and I don't know why. <laughs> I have some sort of aversion to to Charlie Kaufman movies, even though I've never seen a Charlie Kaufman movie. I've heard nothing but good things about Charlie Kaufman movies, and yet I'm just like, uh, no, I'm good. I'm, let me go watch something else. Uh, fair enough. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very specific thing, and I know plenty of people who've actually been actively annoyed 
annoyed by them rather than particularly enjoying them. I would say try watching Adaptation sometime just because I think it's a really sort of wonderful... Is that the one with Nick Cage? Yeah. Well, right. so he, he makes a movie worthwhile. Yeah, well, it, it stars Nick Cage and Nick Cage, so you know you're in mm. for a, a good time there. Um, give that a watch sometime. We'll talk about it. It's, 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 a, it's a fun movie playing with these fucking ideas. It's, it's the movie that does the kind of bold, aggressive, thoughtful, structural fucking around that this movie could have benefited a little bit more from given its themes of the idea of being struck within a work of fiction, bleeding out into reality, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you know what? In, in that vein, you know what this movie re- reminds me of in certain ways? Like science fiction stories written before like the, the you know, the 60s and, you know, before like the start of like the postmodern era in pop culture. Um, where, you know, like inverting, like, like tropes and things just became, became what you do, which I mean, I I might be placing it a little early, but, but yeah, it feels like something made just before that point where it, it's got all the, it's got all the pieces together, but it just puts them, puts them together in a way that's too like the stuff that came before it. So you don't get like that full punch of like the, everything is not what you thought it was. But the problem is that this movie is from 1995. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite a thing. But at the same time, I would say that uh, some of the sort of like uh, media grounding we've talked about, like the the sort of noirish feel of the straight face part of the film, the idea that it's pulp horror, the idea that it's strongly influenced by Lovecraft, uh, can be taken at least optimistically to put that partly as a bit of intentionality. Like it's maybe going for sort of like the the pulp horror and pulp comics sort of feel. Uh, I don't know if that's actually totally true or if it's just Carpenter not pulling off what he wanted to, but, uh, you know, what was, what's sort of weird about the, the, the noir angle that, that I, again, like this is Carpenter not doing a very good job with like the single female character he has in this movie, <laughs> um, is that, you know, she's set up as a femme fatale and then is not at all. Yeah, it's weird. Like, we, they we, just totally drop that, like yeah, completely. Yeah, we, we we get this thing where she she comes into the beginning of the film when we, when Charlton Heston you know brings her in and and we get her as sort of like it feels like sort of like a late eighties shoulder pad business suit lady. thing. Oh my god, the fucking power suits in uh, this movie. <laughs> and then yeah, it doesn't really even follow through that so much. We don't so much deconstruct her power suit corporate mm-hmm. exec sort of persona as just like immediately kind of just wander off from it. Um, like they dislike each other, you know, for much of the film, but, but they don't really go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's, it. it's, it's almost set up as like, like one of those, you know, like sort of Tracy and Hepburn sort of dislike things where you think they're going to exchange in witty repartee throughout the movie. Yeah. And that's going to like, like you know, it's going to be a little of, bit moonlighting or something. Yeah, exactly. And then it just turns out not to be that at all. And yeah. just any conversation they have is painful to watch. I know. Yeah. Um, but you were saying something. Uh, no, oh, no, just the suits. No, yeah. I guess you were just uh, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, I was the, just the fucking suits in this movie. Charlton, like they, Charlton Heston, you know, um, is not in a power suit, and I, I, I wonder if they tried to get him into one. And he's just like, what the fuck is this? Because everybody <laughs> else is, you know, just even Sam Neill almost has uh, has has one on. Oh, um, just one other thing about the noir angle: the diner scene. It is the diner scene from every single movie that has a diner scene, even the angle on it. Yeah. I, I thought that was, um, you know, and then... Which, again, if we're going to say David Lynch, we can, you know... Yeah, he did that in Mulholland Drive. Did he do one of those in Lost Highway, too? Uh, I don't remember if there was in Lost Highway. There was, of course, the huge amount of diner-centricism in, uh, in Twin Peaks all throughout. 
Oh yeah, so. yeah. And there was at least there was a diner scene in Blue Velvet, but it wasn't like that kind of diner scene. But they that was the exact kind of diner scene that was in um that was in Mulholland Drive and um oh shit some Tarantino movie that I'm totally spacing on right now. Um, that's you know, and it might have been Pulp Fiction, but it might not have been. Well, we've got, the, um, we've got the diner in the opening of Reservoir Dogs, but that was really kind of its own thing. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of diner scenes in movies, so it's it's a really uh, American thing, I guess, because I don't so. think they have Maybe diners so. anywhere else. I think, yeah, I don't think they have like diner diners anywhere else, unless they're you know like mimicking the American ones. Yeah, it's probably some uh, Planet Hollywoods <laughs> in in Europe somewhere. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to the least informed architecture <laughs> podcast available today. Yeah, I was, uh, I was just talking to a guy about uh, flying buttresses, and I, I, I just laughed because butt. Um, yeah. <laughs> what else? The fucking goat eyes on the uh, Sutter Kane's agent. I guess it turns out is who the guy with the axe. Where when things start getting weird is when the guy. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's what I was gonna say. So like, you've got like that's the, that's the last Warish scene is them like having that you know conversation in the diner. Come work for me. I don't want to come work for you. Nobody pulls my strings. You know, clearly set up line. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then, like, the guy just, like, slowly comes out of the background, like, just out of the building where he's not, into the background, and then he smashes the window, and that's when everything goes to hell. And I really like that, because yeah. that's, you know, it it's, it's so obvious in certain ways, just because, you know, he just pounds his way in there. But then, you know, when he just, like, turns to the guy, he's like, do you read Sutter Kane? And then it goes to kill him. I, I, that was wonderful. Yeah. Like, I think that that was a point at which the movie was just, like, you know, doing exactly what it wanted to do, exactly how yeah. it wanted to do like, it. Let's get down to it. Uh, yeah, I, I liked that. I liked the... Uh, I, I, I thought that was actually a nice touch storytelling-wise, too, because we kind of get the idea that the book is driving people insane, gets hinted at pretty early on, and that ties well into the random guy with the axe. Uh, so it's not it's not the cleverest reveal in the world, but the reveal later on that that actually is Sutter Kane's agent, and he's actually probably not so much trying to kill people because he subscribes to the horrific worldview of Sutter Kane, but rather trying to kill people because he wants to stop it because he started to go a little crazy because he knows the secret uh, was the read I had on that. Um, so it kind of inverts that scene once you get to the explanation of who the dude with the axe is. Uh, and I really like that idea. And that, that's one of the things that would have been interesting to see if they had decided to take sort of a long view of of the end of the movie is like potentially the idea of a conflict between a half-crazy resistance trying to suppress the uh, produce of Sutter Kane, uh, sort of an all-out war with the actual uh, bad things and the people who were slavishly obeying uh, their new masters or whatever. Yeah, yeah. On, on the human end, the conflict is between people that have had like the 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 whatever revealed to them and have you know gone insane and become like partially possessed, and the people who've been driven insane by being around it and are trying to stop it. Right? Yeah. Like, there's two separate teams of insane people. Yeah, and we don't really see much of that, but I think the yeah the, the agent with the axe was representative of the the resistance, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were other little, I, I, I guess the, the violence in the book. Because stores, Sam Neill becomes like the crazy axe wielding person. Yeah, yeah, which was a nice. I, I, I got a chuckle out of that when when he uh, 
when we go to the end, and that's how he ends up in the asylum. I guess is that yeah. he went chopping people up. Yeah, I, yeah, I really, I really like that. Just as a parallel to the previous one, just because in the previous one, just the way that you know the agent addresses him and just like totally not crazy at all tone, and then goes to kill him. You know, Samuel is the same thing. It's like, do you read Sutter K? Oh, it's like you know, did you enjoy the movie or whatever? It's like, yeah, open mind. It's like, well, this part should come as no surprise. Yeah. You know, just like the totally deadpan. <laughs> You, he looks crazy, but he's not acting crazy if he's right. But at the same time, we never it, the movie never actually makes clear whether or not you know that was a hallucination, like the eyes and the then the bleeding, the bleeding eyes, and then the goat eye things. Uh, you know, we the, we never got an idea of whether that actually happened or not. So at any point, you know, um, this movie always le- le- leaves alone the. Um, the, you know, maybe he is just totally nuts. None of this is happening, and he's actually just a crazy guy who, who murdered people. Yeah. Like, that that sort of baseline, like, revelation to the movie, they always leave that in there, which I liked. Um, it reminded me a lot of that scene in Total Recall with the pill. Uh, um, do you remember what I'm talking about? Which, where, like, um, where he's on Mars, and, like, this guy comes in, and he's just like, hey, listen, uh, you're still in the, you know, virtual, re- not the virtual reality, like, the like the implanted memory vacation oh, right, right, you're right. having, and you've actually gone crazy, and, you know, this is a fail-safe, uh, you know, I'm a fail-safe thing, and here, eat this pill, otherwise the walls, are, you know, eat this pill, and you'll, you know, you'll pop back into reality, otherwise, you know, the walls will come crumbling down, and you'll, you know, you'll be insane forever, and he kills the guy, he doesn't eat the pill, the walls literally crumble down because there's bad guys behind it who are waiting him to not eat the pill. But at the same time, you know, Total Recall is another one of those movies that, again, never answers the question of whether this is actually happening or not. Yeah. Neither does this movie, and I like that. Yeah. Or uh, Brazil, depending on which version of it you saw, uh, does the same I thing. Think Brazil, was, Brazil was more definite, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, up until the reveal, Brazil sort of plays with that very nicely. Uh, and, and yeah, pretty pretty fundamentally declares that no, actually, yeah. he's just on a uh, psychotic break because we've tortured him beyond the breaking point. Turns out to be the hope you've seen Brazil, folks. Yeah. If you haven't, shame on you. Get to it. But uh, <laughs> but there's a chance that you'll see the shitty American cut that doesn't have this reveal. So you know, um, oh, the good ending. Yeah, yeah, the the happy ending version, which is just not as interesting. Um, because it really it just it turns the movie into oh and then everything ended well which like seriously did you watch the rest of this movie did you really come to the end of this movie feeling like the way it should end is and then everybody had a happy fantastic you know no it doesn't fucking uh but that's a that's a whole different thing uh i wanted to say the trent uh sam neill's character apparently eventually i figured out what his name was and started using it in my notes uh john john trent uh, he has a weird dream after finally reading some Sutter Kane to try and figure out what's going on. And in the dream, uh, he's, I think, basically surrounded by a bunch of uh, creepy hobo crew, uh, including the agent, uh, with axes who then chop him to pieces. Uh, and, and then he wakes up. And then there's a freaky cop that he saw in a previous weird moment next to him. And then he wakes up from that again, which, which this is like, two different direct Prince of Darkness riffs like in one scene there. Cause like, I feel like the, the crew of people axes was very much the weird, you know, devil's hobo crew from Prince of Darkness. Yeah. Uh, but then the, the, the wake up to a scare and another wake up immediately. I mean, that's, that's impossibly, you know, close reference to the end of Prince of yeah. Darkness with the double. Oh yeah. Thing. Yeah. The, the, the Godfather wake up 
thing. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it was first done in The Godfather, but Carpenter fucking loves that move. The, you know, roll over in bed, and, oh shit, it's a thing! Yeah. And then sometimes there's not a thing because they wake up again. But, uh, yeah, that's that's Has that's Carpenter very... ever done one where there actually is a thing and they don't wake up again? I'm trying to think um, of a... I want to say they live, but I don't recall. So there's a scene like that in They Live, but I don't, I don't, I can't recall what it is exactly. Yeah. Because I, th- I think, I think in, in, in They Live, like, some guy discovers, like, zombie, like, that his girlfriend's, you know, one of the alien zombie people things. Yeah. Um... Oh, but I want to say also about the, the the dream, setting aside the references, I feel like if we're mm-hmm. going to go with the idea that maybe Trent, you know, that Sam Neill has this awareness growing within him of the nature of Sutter Kane's work and whatnot, this dream could actually have been sort of his subconscious attempting to help him stop the process. Like, it's it's basically, it's not so much what it looks like, which is a bad dream about being mm-hmm. chopped to pieces by crazy people's axes, as much as his brain doing the math and saying, you know what needs to happen before shit gets out of hand? You need to be dead. You need to remove yourself from the equation. It was basically a suicide plea by a rational, far-seeing part of his mind willing to take one for the team, or the team is humanity. But instead, he just has a double wake-up scare with a gross cop. I wonder if it's possible to intercut this and Jacob's Ladder into one movie. Maybe, maybe. I feel like maybe hop back and boom, there we go. We're we're back to Lost Highway again, cutting back between two different yep. narratives that way. Yep. If if every time someone that would be great, actually. This is what I want someone to do. Someone who's listening and feels like doing a huge film editing process just because I said something on a podcast. Find a bunch of films where people wake up and cross into different pieces of a narrative. And then cut them all together at the wake-up scene. So just have just do a giant cycle, like a ten-hour cycle of films involving people waking up and being it was just a dream or actually something else is going on here, and just cut them all together in a big loop. Isn't that what that there was a movie, Holy Motors? Isn't that isn't that supposed to be kind of like that? I've never seen that. I don't know that one. I've I've only read about it, and I'm not even entirely sure that's the movie I'm thinking of. But yeah, I would like to see that. You could even you could even work in. Uh, have you seen Grand Was Budapest it? Hotel? No, yeah. Uh, it's, well, uh, I, it uses a layered yeah. narrative thing, so there's a bunch of yeah. sort of jumping backward to. Well, let me tell you a story where a guy told me a story. You know, it's very very kind of. Wasn't tale. there um? Wasn't there a no, like an experimental novel like that where every chapter is a different style of a novel? Probably. Um. What the hell is it called? If a stranger something or if ah uh, well oh yeah mm, that sounds mm. familiar yeah and the, the the title is like a sentence fragment. Um, yeah. Yes. Someone. Someone is shouting angrily at the at the podcast right now. Uh, Just as, as I do. If on a winter's night, a traveler. Ah, yeah. By. It's Hallow Calvino. The problem here is that I just don't read that much. Mostly, I just read Sutter Kane. Um, oh well, I mean, uh, <laughs> what else is there, really? Can I can I ask a question? Uh, who the uh, fuck keeps a bicycle horn in their glove box? <laughs> Because that's that's the thing. Once once we get into the uh oh, I guess it's going to be sort of a buddy cop film, which then it doesn't turn, really turn out to be after all. But uh, who opens a twenty five bag of sent bag of chips and doesn't finish it? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of weird little motivational problems here. And again, I mean, maybe you don't finish a bag of chips because you know that represents a narrative fragmentation because you're just writing the bits that you write and and the stuff the rest goes away. The bicycle horn is a total sort of like. You know, let's just write it in because it's convenient for the situation and not think it through. Uh, 
Yeah, their time in the car was like the whole, like, you know, I'm expecting witty repartee to start thing, just slowly decaying, and just, like, the last the last throw of it is that bike horn. Yeah. Hey, remember the Marx Brothers? Honk, honk. Uh, Linda, Linda gives a whole speech about, like you mentioned earlier, about reality being subjective, and what if you were to suddenly switch places with the insane and, and whatnot, and, and there's the reference that you'd find yourself in a padded cell, which, dun, 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 um... Did, but, did your did your copy of the movie have that like little blinking thing at the bottom that just said foreshadowing? <laughs> no, I, I, I turned off the uh, yeah I turned off the obvious uh, structural indicators uh, stuff because I you know um, I, I wish I had found a way to make that sentence funny, but but what you said was funny, and I just want to acknowledge that I enjoyed your joke. <laughs> Uh, but okay. So, so Linda gives her a little speech about reality being subjective. And what if you were to suddenly switch places? And then in the next shot, she's driving and Trent is in the passenger seat. And I don't know if that was intentional or just like a happy, subtle little accident, but I actually really liked that moment. I was like, (laughs) I'm, I'm invested in the idea that this film is, you know, making that intentional decision. Uh, And at the time I was thinking, yeah, but that's not quite fair because like Linda's not, you know, a crazy person as far as we can tell, but she definitely becomes consumed by all this weirdness before Trent does. So in a sense, it does work thematically there too. And then she becomes like actually possessed by like, you know, a tentacle fiend from beyond. But talking about dialogue again, then, then she has her weird little fucking voyage where the road disappears and she sees like lightning and clouds underneath her Mm -hmm. and she's flying through the air and then crossing a bridge. And then suddenly it's daytime and her response to this and him being like, Oh, you know, I guess we're here. Uh, is you drive. And I feel like that's so emblematic of the shouting at the screen problem with some of the character reactions that yeah. we were talking about. Because that's that's the one thing you would not fucking say. You would say, oh my fucking God, the weirdest shit just happened. I don't know if I was asleep or not, but I'm really concerned. Not you drive. You know, and it's like maybe we're supposed to buy that the existing antipathy between their characters is sufficient that she's like, you know, fuck you, I won't even give you the satisfaction of admitting that I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. But uh, I didn't really buy it. I didn't really buy yeah, it. Yeah, there's it's it's you know, it's it's the I mean this movie could all like the noir sections of this movie could almost be called the incurious detective. Just because he's, he's he just does not give a shit, you know. Like for somebody who's just looking for the con, he's just ignoring all evidence otherwise. Yeah, and a lot of that evidence is fucking weird. Maybe maybe this film is actually John Carpenter was getting ahead of the game in writing a satirical critique of anti-vaxxers. Mm. Like 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 the Sutter Kane's work is actually the propagation of once well-contained uh, communicable diseases. And uh, John Trent's refusal to acknowledge that there's an issue, even when there's super clearly an issue, and and outright declaring that it is not so because that would be bad, uh, represents the intractable uh, pseudo skepticism of the anti-vax movement. And the You're crazy not hatchet people are. are... Really bad now. <laughs> no, okay. no, I would not be able to. I mean, yeah, the in in New York actually, I was. Uh, I was reading about this a while ago. Apparently, in, in New York, and I, I didn't realize this, even though it happened to me, they don't actually let you attend public school if you're not vaccinated or have, like, a written religious exemption. So you can't just, like, oh, yeah, around here, like, you can't just not vaccinate it just because it's like, I don't feel like it. Which is, I am also not anti vaccines, I am full of them. I, I again I feel like I, I I feel like I should have a one liner right now and I got nothing today. I'm uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm very straight faced on this, this episode, I feel like, uh, but yeah, so the, 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 another thing they drive like all day and all night to try and find Hobbs end in the middle of New Hampshire. And they drive from New York. You know, I think there's like one reference to like the where like that publishing office is, is New York. But there is no scene in this movie that takes place in New York as far as I can tell. Yeah, like the interior of the office. plates too. Yeah. Like, like do we even get like a good view out the window in the... In Just the, in the, the diner. I guess, yeah, I guess, I, I guess, yeah, I guess sitting in the diner they've got a street out there, but... But also, I don't know New York well enough. We've talked about this before. New York's still pretty abstract to me, even though I've been there a couple times. So it's not like I'd be able to look at it and say, oh, for sure, that's not New York, just because I don't have the the background for it. But uh, but yeah, so they, I, I, guess, I guess they probably killed some time driving to New Hampshire. Yeah. But New Hampshire is not that big of a state. And I feel like if you have a pretty good idea of like within 50 square miles in New Hampshire where this mysterious not on the map uh, town is you could only get so lost covering the roads that exist there, especially since they seem to be on like well-paved roads. Every time we see a road, it's so, a four hour drive from Manhattan to New Hampshire. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm not entirely sure how they lost that much time in New Hampshire, especially since, well, I, I guess uh, driving until morning is not no, so much the case because she drives through a mysterious hole in reality to get into town. But that's already at night. Yeah. So yeah, they really maybe they started in the late afternoon. Maybe you know, I don't know. It's hard to say. Hard to say. Um, the moving painting we talked about earlier, the the one in, mm-hmm. in Pickman's Inn. Uh, yeah. Uh, certainly, there's there's no reason to think this was like tied to that. And I, I should start my sentences with the subject rather than my commentary on the subject. Stephen King's uh, short story, 1408, about a creepy haunted hotel room that they ended up making a movie with John Cusack, I think, uh, that I have not seen. Yeah, sounds familiar. Uh, but there's a there's a creepy moving painting in there um, as well, which certainly I'm sure there's been creepy moving paintings a bunch of times, but it really made me think of that just because I found it like a pretty effective detail in that Stephen King story. It's funny. I've read so much Stephen King that I don't really think of it as like, I think of it more as like, Oh yeah, I'll read some Stephen King. Cause I, I enjoy reading his stories and I don't really tend to read them going in thinking, Oh, I'm going to read a scary book, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of absurd because like I've found plenty of Stephen King books, scary and whatnot, but even short stories, particularly like I tend to think of his short story stuff as here's an interesting idea Stephen King had and let's see what he does with it more than I'm going to get creeped out. And and so I think when I got around to reading uh, the short story of 1408, um, I had already sort of read reviews of the film as being, eh, you know, it's a horror movie, it's fine, but it's not great. And I think I sort of went into it thinking, this is going to be eh, and, you know, it's like whatever, a haunted hotel room, how how have I not read this Stephen King story three or four times? And yet I think there was this point in it where I got far enough into it and there was this creepy painting detail and I was like, man, I'm fucking creeped out right now and and – so seeing that I love like, creepy paintings. Yeah, and seeing that's one of my favorite. Here, like, uh, yeah, brought me back to it. Yeah, there's just something about it. Like it's it seems so absurd and obvious, and like you know, it, why why does a detail like that get to me when I so objectively know that like it's you know tomfoolery that it's someone writing a horror story rather than like anything that I would ever actually worry about. Um, and maybe it's just that, like, it's that nature of observation, the nature of grounding yourself in what you look at, and 
the reliability of things. Maybe the fact that if you look at a painting in a dim room when you're already spooked, it'd be easy to not be quite sure you didn't see something. And so it's got a certain yeah. weird plausibility of uncertainty, at least, even though you still know it's impossible. You're still like, yeah, but, you know, it's like going down into a dark basement. Like, there's never anything in the fucking basement, but nobody wants to go down in a dark basement because it's fucking creepy. You know, it's, it's weird how that works. And it's interesting that a painting somehow manages to be one of those things. Yeah. The, um, especially when they keep just changing it, but just ever so slightly. Yeah. That you, that, that, that at this point, like when you're watching it, you're not even sure if like you, the viewer missed something or if it moved or if it wasn't supposed to move yeah. just cause, um, you know, unless you were paying super close attention to the, that little part that changed, um, and, and then, you know, when you, when it just changes totally outright, that, that just sort of like, it's like, oh shit, then it, it was even changing before. I don't even know what's going on anymore. Yeah. You know, when the, when the, the, the couple and the painting transform into the, um, like the things. Yeah. The, the weird full on tentacle crawling things. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there, I think there's just something about, uh, that approach to reveals too, that's, that's really effective in a way that maybe isn't used as much as it could be. Uh, the idea of like, cutting away, cutting back, you know, really just glimpses of a thing and finding the changes. I think there's something about our capacity as sort of pattern matching and, uh, you, you know, machines as far as how our mm-hmm. brains work, that there's something really effective about changing from one static image to another and having the change be the startling thing. Um, this really, it's really kind of a, an impressively effective thing to... To use because another example I'd say is the the creepy uh, weeping angels from Doctor Who that yeah. we've gotten so much use out of. That's a like they are so much more effective when they're doing it as the move from the static shot to the static shot than the rare cases mm-hmm. where we see of an actual like you know actively hissing one. I feel like there's been a couple yeah. uh, scenes like that, and and one of those things actually seeming to be sort of in the process of moving a little bit is so much less effective to me than seeing it suddenly being closer after a glance away and back you know it's a really really super effective thing to just like make that brain processing images versus you know short-term memory thing do so much of that work um and underscore the impossibility like we know something can't move and then it does you know obviously that works too um i wanted to say uh i don't know if i mentioned this at some point in a previous one but uh i feel like we should watch paranormal activity at some point um, yeah, yeah, that movie, that seems like a scary-ass movie. Yeah, I, I, I've seen, oh, I think I've seen the first three at this point, and it kind of just keeps doing the same thing, but I enjoy I enjoy the franchise in part because they have to keep coming up with new ways to get away with these sort of found footage framing devices, which I think, I think maybe we talked about this a little bit when we watched VHS, um, but kind of like so much of those films involves static camera shots because it's not doing the pseudo documentary guy with a camera on his shoulder thing. Most yeah. of the time it's doing security camera footage of one sort or another, essentially like, Hey, let's set up a camera just to see if we can find out what's going on. And then you get to watch, you know, footage, uh, that's very, very static. And one of the things that I think is interesting about those films where they, the places where they work well is where they find good ways to play with your cinematic expectations. Like some of my favorite, like I have, I I remember scenes in those movies where literally nothing happens uh, just because I was sitting watching so carefully in case something did like, you know, like a 30 second shot in a bedroom that like there's almost no soundtrack. 
It's a still shot. You can't even see a human being in it, but there's surfaces that you're watching. I, I remember watching for movement in the window reflected in a mirror on the left-hand side of a frame, <laughs> uh, just like on the edge of my fucking seat because it's like, if this was me, if I was making this movie and I wanted to catch someone out, I would depend on them not watching this mirror carefully enough until the thing happened. And so instead, I just sat there like really attentively kind of terrified about something happening in that movie in that mirror and nothing did. And still I remember that really distinctly. And I think it may be the same sort of thing. Like when you, when you rely on a lack of movement, when you basically take a static frame or a static image, all of a sudden the way we anticipate things changes and, and you've got a whole different tool set to work with compared to a moving shot. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's a really interesting, uh, area of potential in horror films that's been used plenty of times effectively and and i think the painting here is a a middling example of the effectiveness of that and some of the stuff in paranormal activity uh is a even better example of it but uh i, th- I think that's a really i think it's a really powerful interesting thing and i think that's part of why sort of jump scares tend to be a little bit boring when it's actually something popping out or whatever because it's like i can see something moving anytime you know really yeah. you know catch me off guard by making me pay attention to the thing that's not happening sort of stuff anyway that's uh, unexpectedly verbal uh <laughs> set of <laughs> thoughts on that uh <laughs> i've had some coffee by the way and it's really good it's some really good coffee i'm drinking coffee's good shit yeah um did you notice how much of the dialogue in this movie was 80 yard i did not actually you know I, um, for whatever reason i didn't know a notice. lot I um not Sam Neill's, but a lot of uh, the woman who plays Styles, uh, Jane Carmen, is that her name? Uh, Julie Carmen, I think. Julie Carmen, yeah, yeah. A lot of her dialogue was ADR. I don't know why, um, but there's like, and I mean, the for the far shots, I, I guess you know, just because they didn't catch the audio and they couldn't get the boom mic in the frame. Sure, yeah. But there's 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 points when you know, like her lips aren't moving and the characters talking. Yeah. And yeah, there's, I, I just had some issues with like the sound mixing just cause ADR is one of those things. I, I don't know if it's like the, the, for me, if it's, you know, the, just having too much insider knowledge and not only knowing that there's like strings on the spaceship, it's knowing where to look for the strings. Yeah. So it, it might be one of those things. Yeah, that that's just, interesting. I feel like, I feel like, I mean, I, I do notice, I, I notice bad looping sometimes for sure. Uh, but I, I feel like this has come up before. I think that might be something you've got a little bit more of an eye for than I do. Because um, I think you've mentioned that a couple other times too, when I hadn't particularly noticed anything was up. Um, yeah, I can. It, it's I. I. It's just like I can. If there's even the slightest amount of sound lag behind the picture when I'm watching something for some reason, I can't watch it at all. It's just. Um, it's, it's just one of those things. I'm talking about like milliseconds, literally, because yeah. I have to do the. I have to manually retime the the uh, the audio to the video, and yeah. it's. I guess I notice it if it's my if, gift if, and my curse. Yeah, if, if, it, if it's a little bit bigger, I notice it. Like, there's definitely uh, we stopped watching something on Netflix a while back because it was just it was enough that it was like frustrating. Um, like it was significant. It was Earth Two. They've they've got Earth Two up on uh, Netflix, and it was. A, I, I don't think I ever Is that finished the one from the early nineties. Yeah, early nineties. Tim Curry as a recurring uh, sort of bad guy character. Uh, Clancy Brown is one of the protagonists. Uh, they. It's basically Alpha Centauri, uh, the movie. Uh, in Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri. Yes. Yes. Um, you know they go to they they go to a new planet uh, and. 
and, and, and have to try and sort of settle down. Although it's more of a really rough Mad Max adventure sort of thing in the first season, and then they only ended up with the first season because it got canned. Uh, it was it was okay. I, I, I enjoyed it, but I wanted to watch it again. But like several episodes in, the audio was just so off that yeah, we couldn't we couldn't fucking sit through it. So we just let <laughs> it die. Uh, and I think maybe I've gotten a little bit more inured to the smaller scopes of it, just because for a while we were getting a lot of TV via sort of like shitty YouTube streaming type stuff, where like bad timing was almost so characteristic that I had to be okay with a little bit of it, and I just started trying to work to ignore it. Um, so I may have sort of tricked myself into being able to tolerate it a little bit more and made myself a little bit ADR blind because of that. ADR um, blind. Yep. <laughs> uh, I had a note here that it occurs to me this movie would potentially make a really good point and click adventure game. Yeah. Like this. Yeah, this, definitely. This could have been. Yeah. What's his name? Um, you know, uh, Yahtzee. Uh, you did. If you're listening to this and you, if you've ever watched like a video game review with like cute little stick figure animations and like a really quick talking British guy. Yeah. Um, so he also makes point and click horror games that are supposed to be like genuinely fucking scary. Yeah, I haven't played any yet. I've really got to try those out. Because, um, yeah, I've heard good things. Um, yeah, he's, he's a, uh, what do you call it? He's a multiple threat. Yeah. Because he's funny and he can do scary, which is. Um, I guess like that guy that does Glee in American Horror Story. I've never actually seen. I think I've seen exactly one episode of Glee, and I've been told American Horror Story is scary. Yeah, no, I'd say, you should. I, I would put that on the list. I, I've really enjoyed all three seasons of it. I've watched. Um, yeah, I think it, I might start with the second season if I do watch it. Yeah, yeah just the first season. I, I read about it, and I'm just like, I don't really, you know, I can see how this could be really good, but I don't want to watch any of the things I just read about. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. If, if you're averse to the subject, I would, I would do it. But I would say, I think, I think I've liked the first season best as mm-hmm. horror. Like the, the 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 second and third seasons are both interesting storytelling, and uh, I like the cast. And significantly, it is many of the same cast members, which is kind of neat. Uh, but I, I wasn't as scared by the second and third ones. Like the first one did a better job of hitting some of my horror buttons, I guess. The, um, the, there's a guy in, in it who plays, I think he, I mean, I'm actually, this is something we probably shouldn't spell, but anyway, one of the guys in American Horror Story was in, um, the new X-Men movie as Quicksilver. He's really good. Excellent. I, I haven't seen any of the new X-Men. Like I haven't seen any. Since what three or I, I think since number two, I don't think I even saw three of the original. Three is really divisive, by which I mean everybody except me hates it. And I love it. <laughs> uh, and um, I haven't seen any of the Wolverine movies, but uh, First Class is really really good, and um, I really enjoyed uh, Future Past, even though it wasn't very much like the comic at all. Yeah, but that's I mean I'm really honestly fine with that. Um, this was, this was like one of the movies where it was just like, this is inconsistent, which is consistent with the comics. Um, <laughs> it's like, I'm not sure I can complain about this because they're actually, you know, doing the same thing the comics did. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to this movie. I have a complaint um, about the townsfolk who confront uh, Sutter Kane at the church asking for, I guess, their kids back. And just know, the one? Yeah, and I don't know what Kane was up to with the kids either. Like, what, was there a thing there or was it just... That's a good reason for people to be upset. I assume. Like, okay. just, I assume there's there's a lot of sacrificing going on. Okay, actually, all the kids were weird. Come yeah, I thought they were going like, to eat like, the dog, but it turns out they're friends with the dog. 
Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. But yeah, so maybe he's just like forcing the kids to read it because maybe they're more potent vessels or oh, something. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I remember. Because um, what's his name? The guy in the bar says first he got the kids and then the, he infected the kids and then the kids infected the adults. Ah, that would do it. But they never actually, I, I actually yeah, we, a lot like the thing. They never actually um, make clear the method of in- infection. Yeah. I guess he learned his lesson from Prince of Darkness and that it's, it's, <laughs> it's, not it's better left to the imagination. <laughs> Maybe the kids would just recite chapters of the book or something. Uh, Maybe but, he shoved their heads into a Xerox machine, too. But regardless of all that, the townsfolk uh, confront Sutter Kane at the church. The doors mm-hmm. open, the doors close, the doors open, the doors close, and then the dogs come out. And this is a group of people, all of them have guns, and like one guy, I think Vigo... Yeah, takes yeah, he one takes like shitty a shot. Hearted. She doesn't yeah. even it. He just shoots in the general direction of the dogs, and then they're and all then just running and being up. attacked. It's like shoot the fucking dogs. You have guns. This is why you have guns to shoot at the things. Try, you know, make it. I was ready effort. to shoot people, but I'm not shooting no dog. <laughs> I'm a, I'm to a, be I'm fair, a, I wouldn't shoot the dog. I don't think. But I, if I, I had, a, if I had a gun, was freaked out, and a dog was looking like it wanted to kill me, I would shoot the dog. But well, hopefully, I, I that will never be a situation I actually have to test. Yeah, I wouldn't. Um, I, I don't think I would participate in a plan where a mob sieging of something is is plan A. Yeah, I, I, I think that called for a little bit more finesse than they had. Um, and they were all like, like driven insane, right? They were, um, they were basically hatchet people, weren't they? Basically, they were like yeah. on the same sort of on the same wavelength as the hatchet I, I people. Think, I think they were on their way there at that point. Yeah, I feel like they were a little bit more sure something was really fucked up and scared, but not quite insanely over the top grabbing a hatchet yet. Like I feel yeah. like if they were full on hatchet people, they would have taken care of the dogs, no problem. Right. Uh, Possibly but- with hatchets. Yeah, I feel like I feel like when when we in the film come to uh, Hobbs End, it's maybe like two or three days into things starting to get yeah. bad, and then they finish getting real bad while we're still. Or, there I in mean, the film. Or at least it's it's as long as it has been since Sutter Kane got there. Yeah, like it would it would have started happening just as Sutter Kane got there, and unless he brought the place into being, in which case it literally the, everything would have started. Yeah, exactly. He. He got there. Um, you know what? Um, yeah, and I'm actually I'm because yeah the 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 hatchet people they all have like really you know bloodshot eyes and pale skin and dirty hair, but the people that are actually infected by the the you know the the elder things or the old ones or, or whatever they've got like the the face bruises and then and, and the fucked up looking like actual eyes and yeah, one of those really girls is just like a straight up demon. Yeah. Although it was really funny, you know, when he's just like when he's still in New York City, I guess, and he's getting uh, like he's picking up like all those Sutter Kane novels and like that teenager comes out to, 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 to see what's going on. And the cle- teenagers clearly infected by like the, 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 the other things. If you, if with the way you're going to show that, like there's something wrong with a character is by just giving them like baggy eyes and horrible skin. Don't start off doing that with the teenager <laughs> with like the, 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 the glasses with, with the tape on them and just like the nerdy teenager. It was just like, I guess it could just be acne, but I mean, I guess maybe that's what that's what Sam Neill would be thinking too. Maybe, yeah. But then they never really go anywhere with that, so I was just like, mm. it's like you, you, it's like I guessed it, but I'm not, you know, it's yeah. It was a weird sort of like overt and yet not clear sort of moment with that dude, especially since nothing came of it. Like we don't get like a follow-on background shot of him chewing someone's face off or something. 
Um, oh, um, the scene where he's cutting apart, he, where he like rips off all of the uh, novel covers and then he starts rearranging them. Yes. I swear to you, until like they did the reveal with that, I thought he was just going to cut all the words out and rearrange them into a sentence. Ah, that could have been good. But it turned out to be a map of New Hampshire. Yep. Go Sutter Kane. Which, which means he's been playing a long game with the whole thing, too, which I think was a fair implication anyway. Like, maybe he was getting more yeah. and more into it. I guess here, here's a question. Do you think Sutter Kane is meant to have been sort of an occultist by design who is seeing finally the, you know, the, the total apex of his long plan? Or do you think it's something where he was, for most of his career, just sort of acting under the unstated influence and writing these books. Cause they make a point of saying that, you know, he in, in, insisted on doing his own cover art. Right. Know, and, and, and that is what leads to there being a map of New Hampshire that places a star on where Hobbs end is, uh, or is it, um, but, but um, is that, is that because he has been for the last 10 years mm-hmm. been thinking I must bring about the rise of our dark Lords or is it because for the last 10 years, it's like, you know what? I really want to do the art for this. I'm going to, I'm just going to make that a condition. And he was as surprised as anybody discovered that he'd been creating a map of the path to Hobbs end. I think until just, you know, I think until very like maybe right before they decided to do the publicity stunt thing where he goes to Hobbs End or whatever, I think right before that point he was just an author and then like he 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 figured it out or, you know, whatever it was that was inspiring, like revealed it to him. But yeah, I think he started off as just, you know, just a novelist. Then it turned out that he was like the conduit between their world and our world. Yeah. And and then he he just, um, and he he basically, he went to Hobbs end to Mm -hmm. finish the book, right? Like, like something like like the book was basically written. So I guess arguably speaking, we, we see late in the film that he infects people by literally, shoving the book in their faces. So maybe it's once he read his own final manuscript for in the mouth of madness that he then became awakened and and became fully invested in bringing forth the, the, the dark sleeping things from beyond. And up until that, he had just been sort of writing the vibes thinking he was writing horror stories. It feels they, they do a very, very similar thing on Supernatural. I forget which season it is. And they do a much better job of it there. Um, as far as just like somebody writing out a book that is reality. Um, but yeah, I, I think they just, they, they didn't, they didn't go far enough in either direction with it. And they also, you know, all the way at the end when he's just like, I can't hold them back much longer. Why did he say that? It's a very, this kind of movie thing to say, but it makes no sense in the context. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because it's like, I, I feel like there, 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 there's, I, I, have, I have two arguments for that. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of going back to stuff we've, we've said already a few times. But uh, my two arguments are, number one, it was cheesy dialogue that someone shouldn't have written. Number two, it's consistent with the idea of Sutter Kane being a schlocky writer and this being part of his sense of how to plot something in his schlocky way. So he would write in a book some sort of confrontational dialogue you know, and, and some sort of crisis moment where someone shouts, I can't hold them back much longer. And so he ends up saying that here just because he likes the structural form of that moment. So he's... I just sort of imagined a shit-eating grin on his face as he was saying that. Like, like he's not actually saying, hurry, I want you to be safe. He's saying, hurry, this is how this segue happens in it. So come on and advance the fucking plot already. 
you know, in sort of a knowing way. Like he doesn't want to hold them back per se, or at least most of him doesn't at this point. But he's saying that because that's the thing you say there. So it's like it's it, it's it's a knowingly inappropriate thing to say, rather than just a thoughtlessly inappropriate thing to say. I could. That's that would be the benefit of the doubt explanation. Yes. Yeah, I would really, really like to read a well-written story in the spirit of like House of Leaves tackling this as prose written by the author about the author. You know, I, I would like to read a I would like to read a novel version of the basic idea here that really, really works because I think I would enjoy it immensely yeah. in the way that I'm sort of struggling to sort of pretend that that's what I'm getting out of some of the writing in this film. Yeah, um, I guess yeah, that's my I main would. thing. I'm just I'm going to live in <laughs> denial because I want to pretend that I'm going to trip across that somewhere. <laughs> um. Yeah, and then he and then he rips himself open, and he becomes the hole in the door. Does he become the hole in the door? Like I thought that was what, what the, like there was a perspective shot of like that really, like I that yeah, door was he, such a good effect. Like well, I don't think we've talked at all about the effects in this movie, and that door, like it's a big heavy wooden door, and it's just soaked in like some sort of like black ooze, and whatever's on the other side is like pushing the door in into the extent that it's not like cracking but flexing because of the goo. I love that fucking door. I gotta say, I I, I liked the door too. I did not think it was a very good effect. Or I should say I, I did not think it was a I did not think that it was an effect that was going to plausibly lead to being scared, but maybe that's just me having mm-hmm. a specific aesthetic dislike for it or 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 at least disbelief in it. Like I, I see that effect I'm like, okay, so they wanted to have the door creaking and 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 giving under the pressure of monsters, but they also couldn't figure out how to do it with anything that looked plausibly like an actual door. So they built a big rubber door prop, and then they pushed on it. And it sort of just – it felt very – like I was very conscious of that as a piece of practical effects work in a way that took me out of the movie more than it you know, sold the, the moment to me. Um, it felt very – I don't know. It felt Cronenbergian, but without some of the context that makes that weird, slimy Cronenberg stuff work. Like, like when I see that sort of effect for a, a freaky organic typewriter, I'm like, yeah. okay, that's genuinely disturbing weirdness. That's some serious body horror stuff right there. But when it's like a big wooden door and it just looks like, okay, obviously that door is not made out of wood, I just end up feeling kind of meh. I like that they did it, but I don't really buy it. What's kind of my reaction. So there. Screw you. <laughs> I don't mean to shit on your fondness of the effect. It's I don't know. I, I don't know how to. I feel like yeah. No, I, I feel mean, like I'm I can, still trying to sort out my thinking on it because like it felt like a very carpenter thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I I get what he's going for, and I like the idea of the uh, I, I like the idea of a door being subverted by dark forces in such a way that like physics breaks down. Like you can make that argument for the idea of the bending impossibility of the wood. It just really. I couldn't help but think, hey, it's a man in a door suit, essentially. You know, it felt like a kind of nicely done, but still very 1950s sci-fi B-movie sort of effect to me. I think you may know more about materials than I do, because I was just like, I, I, I did not think that was fake at all, but also I don't have a lot of experience with wooden doors. So I was just like, yeah, I mean, I guess wood could do that if you wet it with ooze enough. Maybe. So I didn't even I realize mean, that was rubber. I thought it was just wood. Yeah, no, no, that was that was definitely... Uh, it, it's, it, it's hard... Wood's funny stuff. It doesn't. Uh, you 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 can get some flexibility out of wood, but not that kind of flexibility in any in any realistic context. But listen to me, I was like, oh, it's so unrealistic. What's happening with that door that the dark forces of Cthulhu are on the other side of? So basically, fuck me. What am I? 
being such a grunt, grump about. Um, uh, the monster <laughs> effects in this movie. I did you did you enjoy them? I did. We there, there wasn't a lot. There was you know there was a little girl, um, which was you know pretty good, really pretty scary. You know, little girl, especially because she was in like the crowd of like the normal looking kids, and she didn't look that. You know, they all looked weird, and she just looked the weirdest. But the ones that looked slightly less weird than her looked still looked like normal kids. Yeah. So I, th- I think that was pretty scary. There was um, what else was there? Mrs. Pickman. See, that is Mrs. That Pickman. Was, uh, that one I didn't like, just because it, it felt. I was underwhelmed. I felt like John Carpenter could pull off a better effect than that. Uh, when I'm thinking of the, the reveal where we see basically a Mrs. Pickman uh, for the last time in silhouette, uh, where she's uh, an old lady on top of a bunch of tentacles. Um, yeah, it's basically like a thing sort of scene, but without the. Um you know, it was all in shadow, and it was just like tentacles flailing about, and you know, a big thick torso. It was, it it was kind of like um, that Twilight Zone episode uh, with Bill Mumy, where he plays the kid with the with with the with the, with, with the powers, right, 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 do anything, and like you know, you see the. Um, you see the jack o' lantern, the uh, jack in the box that he turns his father into, or like whoever that guy is into. Like, it, like you see the shadow of it, and then you see the guy's head just bobbing back and forth because it's you know a TV show from 1950, and you know they don't have the money to make it look like it did. Um, I felt like that scene was a lot like that, in that they maybe just did not have enough budget to show that to us in the light. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that there was potential in that they didn't really. Yeah, I kind of got that feeling. And even what we did see, though, it felt very stiff to me. It, it came off like, uh, like, like, like someone repurposed a Chuck E. Cheese band member. Like that level yeah. of like this felt clumsy. It felt like, it felt like they. I, I realized it was probably a shot they really wanted, and so they didn't want to cut it to something that was just literally a tiny blip of a view. But I still feel like we saw too much of what we did see to hide the fact that it really didn't get pulled off super well. It really felt like it felt like something that would be clever coming from a film student, but from fucking John Carpenter in 1994, like I know he could have done a better job with that effect if probably the time or the budget. Was I feel like it would have been more effective if they just had her chopping him up, just chopping him up, yeah. and that's it. And the effect was, you know, his body being, you know, partially or totally chopped up. Yeah, I think it would have been that. That would have well, been. Well, I think I think they just. Say. Yeah, I think they really wanted the transformation, so I can understand why they went with the silhouette thing and get the tentacles in there. But yeah, I, I think as a result, the shot they actually ended up with was not as scary as other things they could have done instead uh, if they were really just being forced by budget. So it feels like, feels like a missed opportunity. Um, yeah. also the monster in the suit in the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. I was so underwhelmed by that. Cause I, I got the impression that it was going to be some giant heaving, uh, Lovecraftian mess. Yeah. That was literally there. a dude in a rubber suit. Yeah. So instead it's just some guy is like, well, that's, I mean, and you know, the, the, the problem is that the film was coming up to this, but like, this is really when the film starts to pay off a lot of the creeping dread. Like this is when it's like, okay, all the terrible things that we've only gotten as references in, you know, tiny glimpses and foreshadowing and references to Sutter Kane's prose, that's all coming to life now. And so I was really, I was hoping for, yeah. That, that basically, that was that, that was kind of it, it was not as much of a payoff as I'd hoped for. Uh, I think that's the things. problem with 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 adapting Lovecraft or just like adapting Lovecraft's sense of horror is that it doesn't. It's really hard to pull off visually without losing a lot because you know. In I, I don't know, have you read a lot of Lovecraft? Just bits. 
Yeah. I, that, I mean, that, that's the thing. I just personally, I don't think he's that great of a writer. Like I, you know, I'm very fond of the things that came out of Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythos and, and so on, but just like the actual writing by HP Lovecraft is, uh, yeah, I could take or leave it. Yeah. Um, but there is like that sense of, you know, just like that, you know, outer so sort of like, you know, not out, yeah, outer space horror, but just like the cosmic horror. That's a cosmic yeah. horror. And I think that when you try to impress your own idea of what, you know, of what that looks like, you know, and then you have to translate it to practical effects or special effects of some kind, you lose so much in that translation where if it was just art, you know, if it was a, if it was a graphic novel or, you know, a painting or something, you know, you could, you, you could convey a lot of that. But then when you get down to like having to make like that thing that chased him in the tunnel, um, it, it just, it, the, the more you lose, the less scary it gets. And the more you're just being like, Oh, well, that's a, that's a pretty creepy looking special effect. And then by that point, it's, it's harder to judge it for its merits than for its failures to live up to what it was that you're expecting out of it. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of liked the, the, the creature in the, in the tunnel chasing Trent. It ran over there. somebody's foot. Um, I, I, I liked it as much as anything, just because it felt a little bit Hellraiser. It felt like, yeah, kind of yeah, the engineer. Yeah. Maybe yeah. think of Hellraiser too. Mm-hmm. I, it wasn't like you say it. It, it, it hitting the screen kind of takes away what that might have felt like in mm-hmm. in writing. Uh, but for whatever reason, that little effect I did kind of like in sort of a, it's a charming sort of way. Um, there's that scene. Uh, so things sort of keep getting crazy. I have I don't even remember what this scene was, but I have a note here where I wrote mutant with axe with the drive-by fuck you. Like, was it just a mutant drove by waving an axe and yelling fuck you? Do you remember that at all? I do not remember that. I think it must have been some tiny little blip. Um, Linda, I think, shouting that I have to, he wrote me this way when... No, that's the that's the guy that kills himself. That's oh uh, right, right. Wolfgang that's, that's Vaughn. What's his name? Yeah, Wilhelm. Yeah, uh, and right. yeah, and that, that's weird because he says I because uh, Sam Neill's like you know don't do it. And The guy's like I have to. You wrote me this way, and he did say you right. I couldn't tell if it was he or you because the guy's got a pretty thick German accent. I, I have he. I think it was he wrote me this way. Uh. Um, because yeah, there, there's never an implication that Trent's an author. Like he's always no. implied to be a character, so I, I, that yeah. just wouldn't make sense. Um, uh, there was um. Oh shit! Well, there's that recurring theme of the ICU thing too. Uh, throughout the film, characters are very yeah, variously saying "ICU," and I, I think the implication is that they see you in that they have all been exposed to Kane's manuscript, and so they've seen yeah. the story, they've seen the truth, and and that's why they can even see uh, Trent. Like, I, I guess there could be the argument that Trent doesn't exist even in the context of the world where he thinks he exists. And he's basically only visible to those who've been exposed to the shared, you know, sort of mental link of psychosis of the manuscript. And you could pull a sixth sense sort of thing, maybe, although I don't think the film sets any of this up in a way that would actually be plausible on a close rewatch. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of those, one of the things the movie does set up is that, you know, um, just the you could sort of convey the 
the the the effect of the writing of 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 Sutter Kane in that you know like he creates a character who's like a noir cliche character straight out of a fifties movie, drops him into this world, and the guy pretty promptly goes insane. Yeah, um, you know that, that I think that makes that, that makes that makes a certain kind of point about. Um, about Sutter Kane and and about what it is that he thinks of his own writing, um, just because there's you know there, there's a lot of things to point out that Sutter Kane's writing is like this you know it it it, it changes you like it's it just it it changes you like from the inside out and and a lot of it also feels like Sutter Kane buys his own hype and he can because it's 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 real. But if it wasn't, it would just be sort of like the story of a rather, like, egomaniacal writer, um, which is, and, you know, like, by itself, the, you know, like, sort of hyper, uh, like, uh, what do you call it, that, that, that sort of horror writer who thinks very highly of himself as itself kind of a trope, um, it was... What was it? The British show, uh, Dark Place. Oh yes, with Garth yeah. Marenghi. Yeah, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is is like the 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 epitome of of, of satirizing that. And um, yeah, I, I kind of like the way that that Sutter Kane was just full of himself, um, because it's it's I, I like the I like the you know like that horror the the horror author that takes himself too seriously trope, yeah. which is very much what you would think of Lovecraft, but really isn't Lovecraft, at least from what I've read, I don't think he you know, I don't I don't think he took himself that seriously. And is absolutely not Stephen King, because Stephen King, you know, is very open to parodying himself. Um and and, you know, just I mean I guess more now than later. Yeah, I, I that's the thing. I don't know what Stephen King was like in the early nineties. Cause I think that was like the height of his like massive drug use and, you know, like his fame skyrocketing. So I don't know if he was like, if he was like that before he became like the Stephen King that you would see, you know, making fun of himself on the Simpsons. Yeah. I get the impression, you know, serious, uh, substance abuse issues aside, um, which were probably at a personal level, uh, terrible pain to deal with and, and probably to some extent at a professional level. I get the impression he he's never been too much of a prick about specifically success. Like he's always struck me, you know, as being somewhat grounded about the fact that it's great that a guy who is not a great prose stylist mm-hmm. somehow has ended up being able to do this for a living and have this giant piles of money and not have to do something else for a living. Uh, so I don't know if he really I don't know if there was a point where he was sort of full of himself, but I get the impression that has not generally speaking been his uh, sort of attitude towards stuff. But I wasn't paying that close attention to him uh, in the early 80s or anything, which I think was, yeah, probably the prime time for that between substance abuse stuff and him uh, being relatively young and and crazy successful. I don't know. But yeah, I think think your general point is is good. It it does lend itself to play like like, like really that idea of the sort of narcissistic horror writer lends itself very well to the story. I want to say I'm enjoying thinking about it now. You sort of mentioned the idea that uh, the the effect on the John Trent character, Sam Neill's character, uh, as uh, sort of maybe sort of fracturing under the pressure of being dropped into the wrong genre. Uh, I kind of almost like the idea of reading the film as being – 
actually just about that. Like, like, like take the film as not being about the end of the world and John Trent's role in it as an invented fiction by a super powerful horror writer. What if it's actually just the story about John Trent genre cross character failing to cope with that? And it's really a story about mental illness of trans fictional entities. So like there is no real apocalypse. There is no real world uh, ending because of, Lovecraftian stuff. It's actually just a story about John Trent displaced noir character having a mental breakdown and a psychotic break because he can't cope yeah. with being in the wrong type of fiction. Yeah, that's um, that 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 works. And you know what? It's it's funny because that would work a lot better if Memento came out after this movie. I mean, before this movie, (laughs) because it's got a very similar sort of thing. Like, you know, the characters are insurance investigators, which is like a very noirish position. Like the, the insurance salesman or the insurance investigator, you know, I'm I'm trying to think of the noir movies, double indemnity, just off the top of my head. Um, some other ones I can't recall, um, but yeah, just the uh, just the insurance in- investigator who already has like a detectivey sort of job, having to put his skills to use in a completely different environment that he is just not built for. Yeah, um, and yeah, that's you know, and, and then in this one he becomes you know like he becomes that that sort of Lovecraftian investigator, like the, the, the sort of Call of Cthulhu uh, tabletop game sort of investigator who who's not really very good at anything save for finding out what's going on. Like he's not yeah. he, you know, he, he's not he's not a particularly tough guy. He's not he's not that smart, but he he he, he figures things out. He he digs them up. And like that's his skill, but at the same time he's not able to keep his sanity while doing so. Yeah. Um and you know what I was going to say like one of the very like the really successfully Lovecraftian like pieces of imagery in this movie is when he like looks behind the uh the poster like there's that tear in the poster and he looks behind it and he just has like this expression of like surprise and dismay and then we never see what's back there he gets distracted and we never you know we never get to look back there but it was something fucking weird. Well, but it re- yeah and I'm trying to remember I want to say I want to say they revisit that scene two or three times that and the, yeah. the alley with the cop right after it mm-hmm. uh recurs early and then late in the film mm-hmm. um and i feel like i want to say the last time we see him encounter the poster he rips it off and what it actually is is part of the poster for the film like it's part of the poster for the with his face like i think we yeah, do see yeah. him pull back and see his face on a still mostly obscured poster for the film that we then get to see the whole poster later yeah. on um but yeah, like up until that point, we get nothing from there. We just get that he is perturbed by the whole thing somehow. Um, Sutter Kane as sort of like a invented god character for the psychotic break fictional character in the wrong fiction kind of works too. Like the idea that Sutter Kane is himself becoming a kind of uh, fictional prophet in in the straight read of the narrative that we get in the film. Uh, this would be sort of like, like what if we say... Sutter Kane is just an invention of uh, John Trent to cope with his lack of a sense of place and time now that he's in the wrong fictional universe. So Sutter Kane yeah. becomes this god figure specifically to him, and that's why. I think that would work even with Sutter Kane being real, because if Sutter Kane is himself just like channeling the 
the will of like the the you know the cosmic horrors um you know it would make more like you could see how trent or neo samuel would would rationalize it to give that power to uh to give that power to Sutter Kane instead of leaving the power entirely with like the horrors. Cause if Sutter Kane has power and like, you know, if he's the one who's typing out these stories and like he, he's the one that, that's making Trent do things, even though that's not what he wants to happen, that's at least slightly more understandable than like the completely unknowable whims of like whatever are, whatever is that's controlling Sutter Kane. Yeah. And you know, like Sutter Kane's narcissism makes him, you know, like, is just, like, on top of that is, is you know, goes further toward convincing Sam Neill that Sutter Kane is behind this, even though Sutter Kane might not have, you know, any power whatsoever. And, like, the, the things that, um, like, you know, the, you know, the, like, the my favorite color is blue thing, that's, you know, that's a hallucination from start to finish. There's nothing saying Sutter Kane was involved in that at all. Yeah. Um, but that sort of doesn't explain what the hell happens with Styles. Yeah, but, yeah, I'm not sure it actually works. I just like the idea yeah, that's what the movie was. There's a bunch of this movie. So most of this movie takes place entirely from Sam Neill's perspective. Like, we were not really privy to anything that happens if he's not around, except for stuff that happens when Styles is around. Yeah. So we switch to her perspective occasionally, um, which is odd because she's not supposed to exist. So is... Is she just him, you know, sort of shifting his his viewpoint onto somebody else to make it more make it make more sense, just so that there's another witness to what's going on that's that might in fact be crazier than he is? It, it could be that. It could be part of him trying to reject some of the crazy things. Yeah. Uh, and I think that actually that works not bad as an explanation. Uh, if if basically he because he, as we've said, is is profoundly in denial through a lot of the film. Like he's just outright rejecting the possibility. Some of this weird shit that is happening is happening. Uh, Linda fails to speak up or he fails to pay attention when she says something Mm -hmm. or he just dismisses it uh, on the occasions where she actually does say something. So we could, yeah, really take this as a, uh, you know, Tyler Durden sort of thing. And everything that Linda experiences, that's crazy that he misses everything that she doesn't point out to him. All of that could essentially be him projecting, the things he cannot mentally cope with onto the idea of this other person. And so the fact that she sees them and he doesn't is actually just us seeing his total mental rejection of those things up yeah. to the point where he can no longer even cope with denying that. And then he sort of has that falling out with Linda and abandons her entirely to, you know, being subsumed by this terrible stuff. Um, there's a scene where, uh, I, I always like punching in movies for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Linda punches yeah. Trent and then Trent punches Linda and then Linda tries to eat Trent's car keys. And then she Trent- does. She succeeds. Does she succeed? I, yeah, I, she succeeds. They I, were made out of pasta. <laughs> okay. I, th- I thought he punched her again to stop that from happening. Uh, no, cause then he had to hotwire the car. Oh, okay. I think um, he punched her again to just, you know, because it's <laughs> cause damn it. fucking John Carpenter who is, you know, is just like, yeah, Humphrey yeah. Bogart, he knew what to do with the ladies, so that's I think that was a very like Humphrey Bogart sort of you know, it's like she's making she's she's it's too complicated to have her awake, so I'm just gonna knock her out. But uh um, but but that, that ties into the fight club argument too, the idea of, you know, 
them we punching each other. We're spoiling every classic nineties movie to be spoiled <laughs> in this episode. Uh, it's 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 been twenty you know fifteen twenty years. Catch up, people. Uh, fifteen years. I think it's been like fifteen years since Fight Club. Uh, uh, Fight Club was what in two thousand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. ninety nine, two thousand. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so punching back and forth that could be essentially you know Jack's self destruction right there. Uh, that ties into that. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think that, uh, that could be a thing. So, it could be entirely a projection of Trent's inability to cope with the the strangeness of the situation. So Sutter Kane's mission for Sam Neill was to get him to deliver the manuscript, right? right? So that the things could, you know, people could read it and things could happen and the movie could get made. But Charlton Heston says that it was delivered months ago. So what happened there? Like, did he... Because if he... If whatever happened to have it had been delivered months ago happened, was that what Sutter Kane intended? Because Sam Neill does, you know, not deliver a manuscript. He, he explicitly destroys and does not deliver a manuscript. Yeah. So what happens there? Like, is it is it just you know, like if Sutter Kane does have that power, like after he destroyed the manuscript, you know, did he just write him in as, you know, oh yeah, he delivered it months ago. That you know, whatever. It's it's just one of those things. It's like it doesn't have to make sense. It's a book. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I, I wondered about that, and I don't have a good explanation. I mean, the film obviously establishes that the manuscript is kind of chasing him because he pointedly mm-hmm. leaves it behind and then gets what delivered at the the motel, motel. or whatever. Um, so I'm going to take my best stab at this and say that what Sutter Kane specifically needed from Sam Neill, he needed John Trent to get the manuscript across the threshold of reality is all he actually needed to do. Like he needed to somehow get John Trent to get back out of Hobbs End and into reality and thus create some sort of just a narrative thread, if you will, uh, that the manuscript could then follow along uh, and after that, the manuscript could do whatever it wants to do, including you know manifest its own epilogue and make this all have happened six months ago, and the movie's coming out you know yeah. next week or whatever. Um, so yeah, maybe that maybe that's maybe that was John Trent's ultimate role was to like be exposed to the manuscript, uh, and and thus sort of reify himself as a physical being because the manuscript is his creator. So maybe having contact with it was enough to sort of seal the cosmic deal, as it were, and then get him back out of Hobbs End through that tunnel so that he's back in the real world. The manuscript can follow that line of existence and then work its its magic once it gets through. Something like that. It doesn't explain the time thing, but I think the time thing may not be satisfyingly explainable other than magic occurred. So Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could see that, like... Sam Neill's character having neither been infected by the things from beyond or been driven mad yet was like the only person that could actually get the the, the manuscript, you know, past that threshold and then yeah. and then that that's that that that's all he needed to do. Like past that, you know, the manuscript t- takes it from there. Um and you know what? I'm just thinking now. Like every time that somebody like encounters the manuscript and see all those flashes of things that happen, and some of them are in the movie and some aren't, and I like how that just like supports the fact that we don't know the full in the mouth of madness story. Yeah, that there's parts of it that we don't know because if we did, we'd be you know like the bleeding eye people. Yeah, yeah, we would actually be in trouble if we yeah. were exposed to the full yeah. story. Uh, which I hope there's a director's cut out there because I'd really like to herald into the end of the world and the consumption by dark forces, yeah. all that we you know, cherish. Um, you know, maybe on a weekend or something. Uh, 
there's a point where uh, Sam Neil wakes up in a confessional, which made me think of Walter in the closet in Prince of Darkness. Ah. Just a little, again, with confined spaces. Um, there was a moment, I just want an opinion on this. We see Kane, I think Sam basically watches Kane uh, finish typing the last page of, of the book <laughs> and places and takes that out of his typewriter and places it face up on the top of the manuscript in the box. Now, there's two things that I can say here. Either he's stacked the entire manuscript in reverse order like an asshole, <laughs> or maybe he was just typing up the title page. Like maybe he was like, it's done. Okay, now I will title did it. You, did you see if he put it a face up or face down? He put it face up. He very explicitly hmm. took that and put it face up on top of the stack. So I would think that's either the title page or he's supposed to be stacking them face down and they just fuck the, the shot up. Yeah, that's a question. Is it a continuity issue or uh, I'm, I'm going to go with title page just because it makes me feel less angry. Um, <laughs> but also I can imagine the idea of sitting down and writing up the title page as the last thing that you do. Like maybe you finish the book and then and then you know at that point what the book is and you can – properly title it like you're no longer in any sort of working title territory so maybe that i mean like at the end of the great gatsby movie where he changes the title from gatsby to the great gatsby (laughs) i I have not watched the movie did that actually happen yeah yeah the framing device is (laughs) nick carraway writing the great gatsby and like the very last part is that you know you see the title page because it's just called gatsby by nick carraway and then he hand writes in the great Oh, man. Because he truly was a great Gatsby. Yep. It's a hell of a Gatsby. Uh, <laughs> Good movie, by the way. I enjoyed it. Uh, we, you mentioned earlier Kane tearing himself open in what I thought was some very poor CGI. It just got worse and worse. Like, he, like first he tore, like, a hole in himself, and I'm like, all right. And then he tore, and I'm, I thought it was just going to finish there. Just like just him having like torn like himself, and he just like looks all weird because you know whatever happens after that is just crazy. But no, then he opens himself up into a black hole, and then out of that black hole, more tour pages come out with text on them. And at that point, it's just like no, stop, yeah, stop. I, I I thought visually it was a very cheesy sequence, even though I liked the idea that they're like really underscoring the metaphor that at this point Sutter Kane is himself basically uh, a, a, a entwined in in fiction. Uh, I did like Linda narrating Trent's looking into the void, though. I, uh, I think that was uh, lo- actual Lovecraft writing. Oh, was it? I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was. Interesting. Well, I, I definitely liked the sequence. I liked the idea of her, at that point, fully a creature of this whole mess, uh, literally narrating uh Trent and really underscoring that whole notion that he is living through basically just the description of, of himself as a character and whatnot. Uh, for whatever reason, it worked for me pretty well. Yeah, especially because she's, you know, an, a reader and an editor. Yeah. And so, and she, so yeah, would so have she has read it. Yeah, exactly. There's reason for her to have, like, said those exact lines, like if she was reading it out loud to herself, or, you know, it's not just, why is this character narrating? I don't understand. Yep. Um, that ending was supposed to be different. Apparently, there was supposed to, it was supposed to um, yeah, the entire town was supposed to get sucked into like the hole that he makes, but um, or not the hole that he makes. I guess it was supposed to be yeah, lets the monsters from the other side into our world. Originally, the script, the entire town was sucked into the other side. When this proved to be too costly, an effects artist at ILM recommended that he instead tear himself apart like paper. 
Um, so yeah, I don't know what that means or was supposed to look like, but yeah. I, w- I would love to see a contemporary take just on that specific effects shot of the tearing himself. Cause I feel like you could do that in a way that would look really superbly disturbing instead of I mean, like, they sort of almost did that in, uh, the 2011 remake of the thing where the guy just sort of like cracks in two. Yeah. So I think it would be something like that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think, yeah, if you could really get the dimensionality and the idea of revealing yourself to be just a thin layer on reality instead of looking like, eh, it's pretty mess CGI and blue screening. Uh, which is funny because this is pretty contemporary to Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. You know, So we've got Sam Neill in two films that have very different yeah. uh, approaches to and degrees of successfulness with uh, see what but the, also very different budgets. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the budget. I was actually looking up exactly that. The budget of this movie was uh, eight million dollars, and it made eight point nine million dollars. So go. hey, it made a profit of almost one million dollars. <laughs> um, Jurassic Park had a budget of two hundred twenty nine million dollars, yeah, a little bit of a and made there. two billion dollars. If they could have just taken some of that extra profit off Jurassic Park and put it into this, everybody would have benefited, I think, you know. Yeah, it's it's sort of, yeah, it's pretty amazing that Sam Neill stars in both of these movies. And, you know, I don't think, his career never, like, blew up. Like, Jurassic Park was the biggest thing he was in, right? Yeah, I don't know that As, like, the main character, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at his, I, yeah, I'm looking at his, the movies that he's made, and... After that one, he was in The Horse Whisperer, Bicentennial. I mean, he's was in a ton of movies, but none of them are particularly uh, of note. Oh, this was after Jurassic Park. Huh. How about that? Interesting. Was it like 93, Jurassic Park? Or? Yeah, Jurassic Park was 93, yeah. and this was 94. Possibly um, somewhat parallel production, though. Who knows? Wow, so Jurassic Park was his peak. How about that? It was a good movie to peek at. I have to say. Yeah. Uh, Could have been Jurassic Park 2. The Blue Dream you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I had a note before that, uh, horror after horror, now being stuck on a bus next to an old Jewish lady comparing, complaining about New York back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then they do the Blue Dream. And I, I liked the Blue Dream, ultimately, but the opening of it really just felt like I was worried, are we seriously just going to do a shitty blue filter shot? And then I, he was obviously going a little bit farther with that than that. But at first I was like, oh, we're just going to do shitty film quality to set up unreality? I don't know. Um, yeah, I was expecting him to like, you know, pay attention. I was expecting it to be like, it's like, you know, you go to the IMDb trivia page. It's like, did you notice this lady's necklace was blue? Yeah. And it's just like, oh, no, it, everything's blue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lady at... Uh, whatever office he wanders into. Oh, the zoning office scene. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and she seemed really certain that there will never be a town called Hobbs. Yeah, I, I wrote that down too. She's like, is she racist she has... against Hobbs ends? It's like, she, uh, as long as I live, there'll never be a fucking Hobbs. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, I think she's got like prescience, except it only relates to local zoning. <laughs> She knows for a fact. She could see as far into the future as you need. There will never be a town called Hobbs End. And that's why she's so mad. She knows that it's an immutable fact of the universe that there's never going to be such a town. And this guy just doesn't fucking get it. 
There's there. She, she once went to, there was one time a good Mexican restaurant in New Hampshire. It was only open for a day and she went there and she ordered something that had very hot, spicy peppers. And so she went into a hot, spicy pepper trance and in her spicy pepper trance, she had that thread of prescience and yeah. Dune. Uh, <laughs> I liked uh, the, the twerpy admin in the asylum. Once we get back to the uh, he mm-hmm. he kills a dude. And we get back to the asylum for the giants and the the the, the twerpy admin dude uh, asks haltingly, you know, do you read Sutter Kane of the master control processor? And mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice little touch in there where even the seemingly sane uh, uh, bastion against the the approaching darkness was actually in on the whole uh, terrible game there by implication. Yeah. Um. That was. Uh, do you remember? I don't remember what the guy replied. Uh, I, I'm not sure we even got a reply. I think that might uh. just been the end of that, and then we cut to uh, the escape from the asylum sequence and and all that. Uh, which we already talked about the ending with him yeah. wandering out and uh, finding his way to the theater and sitting and watching. Something. I love that he. Yeah, there was like the, that. The, just the little touches in that that you know he walks into the theater and then as he's walking into the actual like he walks into the theater building and then as he's walking into the actual you know theater room he's got he's got a full bucket of popcorn. <laughs> like where did that it's come the from? Apocalypse, but you know, hey, got You're watching a movie, cannot have popcorn. Come more, on, more like the apocalypse. Yeah, it was it was just like a really sort of almost like a Seinfeld. It's like you stopped for jujubes before you came to see me, sort of thing. It, 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 could, um, al- it could almost be a Seinfeld episode if Seinfeld had <laughs> lost its mind and gone into you know bizarro Lovecrafty and existential horror. Like I could see Newman sitting right next to him, also eating popcorn and laughing. Uh, um, oh, I got a list of the uh, Lovecraft stories. Uh, that the titles of Sutter Kane's novels books were based on. So, um, there was, uh, what do you call it? Oh, you know what? I can't tell which one is the Lovecraft one and which one is the uh, Sutter Kane one. Um, oh, the whisper in the, okay. I think the novels are, have, are italicized. So Sutter Kane's whisper in the dark is based on Lovecraft's the whisper in darkness. The thing in the basement is based on the thing on the doorstep. Uh, and Hunter Out of Time is based on Hunter of the Dark. So it's very, very... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not messing around. Mm-hmm. Uh, that church, really, really cool uh, place to make a movie. Yeah. Yeah, it was a... It was a- Nice exterior, nice interior. Yeah, and that that also like the discovery of that church was, um, and he was just like we, when when you know they they're in the hotel room. He's just like, well, you know, if his novels are correct, I should see a church outside this window. And there's a barn there. She's like, you didn't read closely enough. It's out this window. I'm just like, it's like you know, you'd think he would have checked all the windows at least by himself first, rather than be like, it's if it's not outside this window, it definitely isn't outside the other one. <laughs> Like trying hard not to lose a bar bet, uh, except it was a bar bet about the you know nature of reality and the end of the world. Uh, a couple little things from the credits. Uh, one thing I did not notice in his brief three seconds on screen is that the paper boy at the end uh, was Hayden Christensen. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Anakin Skywalker on a bike. Uh, he couldn't act even then. You know, he's not a. I I I've seen him in a couple other things where he was actually fine. I really feel like 
I feel like the Star Wars uh, prequels were really, really, really bad for him in a way that's not necessarily yeah. fair to him. Because uh, it's like everybody else was shitty in those movies, too, because they were so shittily yeah. written and directed. I mean, Natalie Portman's I'm, a good actress. I don't think she's, like, you know, the greatest actress of all time, but she's undeniably a totally solid, talented actress. And she she came off as flat and boring and terrible, too, because, Jesus Christ, George Lucas. Yeah, the people in that <sighs> acted roughly on the same level as the CGI people, which is saying a lot for the CGI people. I, yeah. You know, they, they did a good job with those, but... Yep. Yeah, I mean, um, Jar Jar really was glad. Jar Jar was certainly yeah. fucking like hammy and terrible, but you know he was uh, pretty animated uh, in a way that the actual living human beings often were not allowed to be. So, so glad Star Wars is out of George Lucas's hands. But there's also a jokey little uh, thing in the credits after the Humane Society blurb. There was also another paragraph singing, uh, "Human interaction was monitored by the Interplanetary Psychiatric Association." The, <laughs> is that one? The body count was high. The casualties are heavy. Just just <laughs> left it in there. I always enjoy it when people fuck around in those. I remember seeing like uh, any resemblance to people living dead or undead in a, <laughs> I, probably a George Romero film. But uh, anyway, you got anything else from it? I, I think I think I hit all my my notes. Yeah, um, let me just. Uh, oh, uh, the movie that he was watching. Uh, if anybody is curious, the movie that he was watching in his hotel room uh, is uh, called Alien Robot or Robot Alien. Hang on. I've seen it. It's bad. It's a bad <laughs> 50s horror movie. Um, is it Robot Alien? I... Apparently, I thought that there were some pretty solid torches in this church uh, because I wrote some pretty solid torches in this church. So uh, so there you go. I, I was a, uh, impressed by the torches at the time, I guess. Oh, I had a theory. Linda Stiles... Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our female lead in this. Uh, what if she's a member of the same family as Teen Wolf, the TV show's uh, style Stalinsky? Because uh, there's, there, there's all like the monster hunter aunts and uncles and, and vampire whatever the fuck stuff as a recurring theme in that as far as I can tell. So what if she's like a cross-universe reference, like Stalinsky's got some long-lost aunt who disappeared under mysterious circumstances? Uh Changed her last name slightly. Yeah. yeah. I have you watched any of Teen Wolf? I've seen like an episode and a half because my wife was really into it for for a short period of time, and I'm just like, who's that guy? It's on the screen all the time because I've never I've seen that guy on Elizabeth's Tumblr, um, and it turns out that's the main character of the show. So yes, uh, I, I we watched we watched most of the first season, and we're just like. Eh. Yeah. Like it just, it was too stupid, basically. Like, like I, I kind of like the idea of like you know teenagers having a, 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 a monster drama, but uh, it was, it's just so fucking dumb. Like, like there's so many. Ugh. Yes, that's my yeah. review. It's too fucking dumb for me to put up with, even though I otherwise would like the idea of. Like, I, I don't mind watching a dumb show, but it's just the level of dumb, the level of the failure to engage with me as a horror fan. And instead, treat it like Dawson's Creek. If Dawson's Creek was like worsely written, Shittier. yeah, it's like yeah. that's it's so yeah, yeah. We gave up on it. Robot Monster. Robot Monster. That, that is what the movie is called. Robot Monster. Um, yeah, avoid it. All right, maybe. Okay, <laughs> right on that. Just uh, <laughs> <let's> see. <laughs> Just checking all my notes for anything else. Lots of ADR. Uh, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, Sutter Kane sold, has sold a billion copies of his books. That's a lot of copies of books. Yeah, that's, that's one for every, like, five people in the world at the time. Yeah. That's, that's pretty good. Although some people pick up a hardcover and a softcover, so, you know... I, I had I, re- I had written in my in reference to when uh, Sutter Kane makes Linda look at the manuscript. I had the phrase "book rape?" question uh, mark. Just tr- I, I think I, I was thinking about whether we should try and like discuss the idea of the nature of the coercion there, but I think mostly it was just like a scene. So I don't actually have anything significant to say about that after the fact. But, I, I I can't bury my face far enough into my hand to be able to discuss just. Most of that scene. Yeah. Like, if I, like, I mean, just if you're listening to this and you haven't watched it, she literally shows up at Sutter Kane's thing. He stands completely still while he just sort of, like, walks around her with exposition, puts his hand in the back of her head, like, wrapping her hair up in his hand, and then just shoves her face into, I guess it's some sort of, like, magic Xerox machine that, you know, and then she becomes possessed. And I think it was I think just, it was just a, a manuscript glowing with its unworldly power is what was going on there. Oh, okay. Well, that makes more sense. Because, like, that, cause no, that's like yeah. everybody, everybody who sees it ends up, like, bleeding out of the eyeballs with the force of the power of the manuscript, the corrupting gateway nature of it. Uh, and she was just the person we got to see that actively happen to, I think, basically. Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah. Oh, um... Yeah, when he starts cutting out the, um... When he, when he cuts out, like, all the covers, I thought he was going to rearrange it into words, and that just reminded me of Twin Peaks, of just the, um... Like, the, uh... Where, when, um... What do you call it? They write all the names on the blackboard, oh, and yeah. then, uh... Uh, Cooper just like starts throwing rocks at a, at a bottle until it works, just like summoning the intuition like that. I, I thought that's what was going to happen, but it turned out to make a map. Yeah, I think I think I think he like I think he had the sheriff read a name and then Andy threw a rock or something. Or or did was it Andy got hit? I by think a Andy got hit. Andy got okay. hit with a rock. That sounds right. Okay, I yeah. got to watch Twin Peaks again. Uh, um, there's a new <laughs> Blu-ray box set coming out, and it's going to have a shitload of deleted scenes uh, from Fire Walk with Me, which has like. Three, two or three hours of deleted scenes that have never seen the light of day. Yeah, I, I've heard about that. I'm, I'm curious to. I, I may try renting the, uh, the discs that have that stuff. I'm not sure I want to. We already own at least a significant portion of Twin Peaks, so buying another box set, I don't know if I should. But uh, I got the, I got, I got the first six episodes on DVD because I'm sort of glad I never picked up because it was like the gold box which came out right around the same time that uh, Twin Peaks because the the way I watched it originally was that I downloaded during my freshman year of college I just slowly found over like three different file sharing networks a series of Swedish rips of not the VHS but the actual television broadcast with Swedish (laughs) subtitles and this is how I watched Twin Peaks because this was before it came out on DVD Actually, it was right around the time that the first season, which is like six episodes, came out on DVD, um, and then the second season did not come out on for oh, six or seven years after that, I think, at least. Um, so that's how I watched Twin Peaks. And then I watched it again because somebody uploaded the whole thing to YouTube, and man, I am not looking forward to rewatching <laughs> the second season of Twin Peaks. <laughs> I enjoyed it. We we, we rewatched it uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and it, it it is weird and uneven, and is paced oddly, and and then ends up falling flat. And there's that whole James subplot. Yeah, it's completely that's... like I could I could probably stand to watch it again and be perfectly happy to just like skip 
all of the James stuff uh, once he goes on his little walkabout because it's that's yeah. I'm thinking of doing exactly that, except for basically any scene where the focus is on James Hurley and his inner demons. Yeah, like if it's James Hurley and the Bookhouse Boy solving a mystery, sure. fine. If it's James Hurley playing a guitar as Maddie and Donna sing into a microphone, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like. Oh God, we, we we should not get into an extended discussion of Twin Peaks. But the one thing I can say for the tedious James Hurley soap opera stuff is I love that it is sort of tedious soap opera stuff when uh, Lynch had already been mocking tedious soap opera stuff on TV in the show. I just wish that it had been like ten seconds of it instead of like yeah. across several episodes. Because who who gives a shit? Uh, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's in the mouth of madness. Uh, do we have a plan for the, the the next one? Have we talked about it at all? I don't remember. We don't. You just mentioned some movie, and I said we should do that on the podcast. Now I don't remember what it is. Uh, Paranormal Activity. And do that. Right. I, I would. I would watch that again. I, oh I, yeah. So yeah. I, I, Fortnite. I think, yeah. I think I, Paranormal I, I, Activity. I really look forward to you watching that one quietly in the dark and and uh, being freaked out by it because I think it, yeah, uh, I, it's I, a pretty I'm effective, s- spooky one. I'm scared as hell of ghosts. I'll, I'll say it right now. I am terrified by ghosts and ghost stories. This so. should be this should be a quality experience for you because we can combine your terror of ghosts with my fondness for overanalyzing static frames, and finally have that discussion on a film where it takes place. Um, okay, let's do that then. Let's say Paranormal Activity. Uh, the first uh, is what we'll do in a couple a couple weeks yeah. here. And other than that, uh, you know, you you know the spiel. Go say hello on the Facebook page. Uh, Rate us up on uh, on iTunes. iTunes. Swipe left on Tinder. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure how <laughs> Tinder works, but I've seen people say that on Tumblr. So I'm. I mean, at this point, my my being on Tumblr is just like that really popular shot of Steve uh, Buscemi and like the band T-shirt that just says <laughs> "band" there. on it. Yeah, yeah. Hello there, fellow teens. <laughs> how do you do, fellow teens? Yeah. yeah, that's that's how I feel on there. Yeah. Um, but hey, it's it's exposure yeah. to some cultural literacy stuff. Yeah. Uh, what the hell were we doing? We were signing off. I think we were trying to sign off. I think we're trying to, <laughs> let's stop for five minutes and use the restroom, and then we can. Uh, <laughs> Then we can say don't stop tape. Right, right. Jesus Christ, I can't believe I did that. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, uh, Paranormal Activity. Uh, pleasure talking at all of you again, and, uh, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Godspeed, folks. All right. All right.